All right. So, from our previous arguments, we saw that God must be supernatural, personal, powerful, intelligent. So, we've already learned quite a bit about what God must be. Or, usually if I'm speaking to an atheist, I don't call him God. I don't want to get lost in... in, uh, Terminology. I, I, I think we, we should set as few barriers between us and the people we're trying to reach as we possibly can. Let's not equivocate over somebody who wants to call God Allah. I'm okay. All right. So Allah. So we'll call him Allah. That's just Arabic for God. Let's just work with that. You know, however we have to work together so that we can come to some common understanding of what truth is and then we work out from there. So, But how can we know now who that God is? And in order to know more about who God is, we must include another discipline beyond science and philosophy and, and just reason. That doesn't mean we're going to leave those disciplines behind. You never leave philosophy behind, by the way. Science does not say anything. Scientists say things. Science, you, you test this chemical with this chemical and this happens. That means absolutely nothing. What you infer from that result is, is what a scientist would say. So... Any science that you do requires reason to make interpretations about the consequences of your science. And so philosophy never leaves us. We have to make a a philosophical decision every time the light is about to turn red. I mean, do do we have enough thrust, given the mass of our vehicle, to get through there before it turns red? You know, that that is a philosophical decision you're making based on what you know about science as it relates to your car, its speed, and that red light, you know. We don't think of it in those terms, but that's exactly what it is. So we never leave science and reason behind, but in order to make this next step, in order to figure out who this creator is, we have to add another discipline, and that discipline is religion. So in an attempt to determine whether any known religion purports a God that fits with the evidence thus far uncovered through science and philosophy, we're going to have to add this second discipline, and it's here usually you'll get some protests because... Science is verifiable, we can test it, we can repeat it, we can prove things that way. But now you're talking about religion. This is, to most people, superstition, unprovable, right? And that's exactly what we want to avoid. Prove it. What you're doing right now is a course that seeks to develop a rational, well-reasoned foundation for faith. We intend to look at evidence. Specifically, we're going to examine the evidence for three theistic religions, Judaism, the fire alarm? No, that's somebody We're going to look at Judaism, uh, Christianity, Islam, and we're also going to look at agnosticism and deism. So if we're going to know something of who God is, we are dependent on God to express himself. For who a person is or what he thinks or feels can only be understood by an expression of his mind. Without that expression, without some form of communication, the thoughts of a mind are uh, inaccessible by other minds. You don't have any idea what I'm thinking unless I express myself in some way. There has to be something, some form of communication, my body language, the words I'm using, the inflection. So if you want to know what I'm thinking, I have to express myself in some way. And it's the same with God, and that's what this is saying. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except for the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, we as the apostles, 
Not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. God's Word is going to tell us what God thinks. Problem is, there are multiple religions and they all have their own words, right? So what we have to do is figure out if any of them make sense out of reality. All over the world, as far back as we have recorded history, mankind has attempted to make thoughts and behavior of God known. And generally, this expression of who or what God is is communicated in language. And that language is usually coming to us in the form of a written book, holy writ. Now, there are some, like you've got the Vedas and the Upanishads, but you know, Hinduism is much more broad than simply those holy writs. We're not going to deal with Hinduism uh, or, well, Hinduism, for example, is pantheism. Pantheism says that God is part of the universe. Well, if there was a time that the universe didn't exist, then there was a time that God didn't exist. And if God didn't exist to start the universe, then the universe wouldn't be here. So we don't need to look at pantheism, right? And Buddhism, people will say, well, why not Buddhism? Well, Buddhism is actually atheistic. Gautama Buddha was an atheist. What he put forth was uh, something like what Confucianism put forth. It was a way to a better life, a more tranquil experience. And so we don't need to look at Buddhism. Now, there are forms of syncretism from these religions and others that always move towards Christianity because Christianity makes more sense out of reality than they do. So they try to adopt little bits and pieces to sort of buttress their religion. We're not going to look at those. We're only going to look at the, the, the worldviews that make sense by themselves of the universe that we live in. The ideas, ideas found in these holy books largely constitute God's revelation to men according to the people of these religions. And in light of the evidence for creation, we must concede a supernatural, personal, powerful, intelligent creator. There's no way around it. Even atheists, they, they're forced by the arguments to concede that this sort of a creator must exist. What we now need to do is figure out who that creator is. Now, I just talked a bit about why we chose to not include Buddhism and Hinduism. The theistic worldviews that we're going to look at all claim that sort of a creator. A personal, powerful, intelligent, supernatural creator who is not part of the universe. All three of these religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, claim essentially that. So of the religions, these are the only ones that we can look at. Someone might say, yeah, but a deistic God could do that too. A deistic God could create everything, and then walk away. And then you have agnosticism. We've discussed that before. They concede the God that we've talked about, that we've proved by our first argument the existence of God. However, they claim there's no evidence of the God that you purport. Note that all five of these worldviews make the positive claim. A lot of times the agnosticism or the agnostic will will suggest that he's taking the intellectual or moral high road. He'll say something like, well, I'm not making a claim. You're making a claim. But he's making a claim. He's saying we don't have the evidence. The evidence is not in. And so that's when you ask, well, what evidence have you looked at? All right. So in our case, we have five ideas all claim to be true. Therefore, we have five competing hypotheses. The religions and worldviews which are considered here fit with the evidence we've already established that there must be a personal, powerful, supernatural creator. Other religions and worldviews that do not fit with this evidence are excluded, which we've already talked about. 
so then, because the God that is must be personal, powerful, supernatural, only these five worldviews can explain reality. Now, I want to start the discovery by examining these theistic religions, and we need to see if any of them remain consistent with their own teaching. <coughs> so, here are three, three theistic religions, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the Tanakh first. The Tanakh is the Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament. We're going to see if the Tanakh is consistent with its own teachings. In Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is a euphemism for the Messiah. And the hymn shall be the obedience of the peoples. The scepter is a euphemism for the power. Power of God. God the king sits on his throne and he holds a scepter. It's a symbol of his power. The power of God will not depart from Judah, which is the lower section of Palestine where Jerusalem is, will not depart from Judah until the Messiah comes. The one to whom the obedience of the people is owed. The rule of God certainly left Judah in 70 AD. Does anybody know what happened in 70 AD? Destruction of the temple? Yep. Destruction of all of Jerusalem, actually. Right. Flattened, leveled, prophesied by, by Jesus in a couple of places, Matthew 24 most prominently. The uh, If you don't know, Titus comes in under his father Vespasian and levels the place. There was a three-year siege started in 67, and then the whole place is leveled in 70. And so, no question, the rule of God left Judah, the power of God, the power that existed in the people of Israel, left by 70 AD. Had to. It was barren for years afterwards. Malachi 3.1 Behold, I am coming to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. There's actually two messengers here. There's a messenger, the first one, is going to be sent, and he will clear the way before me. That's actually John the Baptist. So that's the first messenger. But the second messenger, my messenger, he will clear the way before me, and the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger, this messenger right here, is the Lord of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The following passage deals with who can stand against him. He comes like a refiner's fire. He brings basically lye soap to you to purify you. It's God coming as a messenger. So we have the scepter is not going to depart from Israel until until the Messiah comes. And here we see that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be God. And he's going to bring a message of a new covenant to the people. This was set in the time of the second temple. There's been no temple since. So the Messiah, that is God, that must come with a message of the new covenant for all the people, must come to the temple or Judaism is false. The canon of the Old Testament was closed in about 430 B.C. And then there's silence from God. The very next thing to happen. So this is 
This is in Malachi. This is the last book written in the Old Testament. And Malachi is saying, I'm sending my messenger, and that messenger will be God. But there's a messenger coming before him to prepare the way. And the very next thing we have is the New Testament. And what do we have that starts off the New Testament? John the Baptist coming, saying, I have come to prepare the way for the Messiah. The kingdom is upon us. It's it's hard to be an Orthodox Jew in this day and age. Because you're going to have to reinterpret all of your scripture. Because all of your scripture, you're going to see, points directly to Christ. And you're going to see as we move through this that Christ is the key to absolutely everything. We, talk, we say that all the time. Christ is the center. Can't have Christianity without Christ. You're going to see how true that is. I mean, there's there's no way to argue through this without, rec- without reckoning with Christ. Yeah? I can tell you the day Judaism died. That was the day that Jesus died. Because they may still have given... Um, sacrifices, but God wasn't accepting them because Jesus was the final sacrifice. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, their religion was gone. They had no way to get to God because they did it through their sacrifices and it had to be at the temple. Right. And they had no way to communicate with God. Right. And so how do you feel right now if you're a Jew? And an Orthodox Jew, practicing Jew, and your religion is based on your uh, your communion with God, and that communion only occurs uh, because you are pure, and that purity only happens after the sacrifice, and sacrifices are no longer being offered. So you're not pure, you no longer have communion with God, your God has left you, and then the Holocaust comes, and six million Jews are killed, what do you do? You go, this whole thing is a fraud, this whole thing is a sham. We've been waiting for what, 4,000 years now for the Messiah to come? Ain't coming. This thing's not real. Um, I want to say this, though, that God came to the second temple prior to 70 AD, or he didn't. Law of excluded middle. He either did or he didn't. If he did, Judaism is true. And then we need to figure out who God was when he came to the second temple. If he didn't, the Tanakh is false, and Judaism is false. Okay. All right, so Daniel 9, 25 through 26 or 27. Um, we're going to spend quite a bit of time here. This is, in my opinion, the most important prophecy in the Bible. This is an amazing prophecy. So what we've already decided is that if God came as the Messiah, he had to come to the second temple. So he had to come prior to 70 A.D. But in fact, we can move it back three more years because there was a siege around Jerusalem. And he had to come before 67 then. So we got to go somewhere over here. And this prophecy gets us there. So let's just read it real quick together. So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's important. Rebuild Jerusalem, that's the nature of the decree. Until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again, Jerusalem, with a plaza and a moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, having nothing. And the people of the Prince, who is to come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. 
and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Really key stuff here. So first thing we need to know is the decree. There are actually four possible decrees. But there's only one to rebuild the city. One of them, you know, you're, you're going to remember these from Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah. There were, uh, there were decrees to rebuild the wall. There were decrees to rebuild the temple. But there was only one decree to reestablish the city. And it occurred, you can find it in Nehemiah 2.1. And it occurred under the reign of Artaxerxes Longomanus. And we know that it occurred between 445 or 444 B.C. So, we know that the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And so there's your 69 sevens. Remember what it says is, you're going to have seven weeks and then 62 weeks together. That's 69 sevens, or weeks. So let me just explain that. What weeks are. They are simply seven they're a period of seven. You, I mean, technically, I guess you could have a, you could have a week of, of doves sitting on a line. It's, it's like we might say an age. An, uh, an age has gone by. You know, well, that could mean since the Renaissance period, or that could mean since I was 18 years old. You know, it's, it's sort of an undefined thing. But this is seven. Whatever the weeks are, it's seven of them. We know from Leviticus, I think it's 25. I have it here somewhere. That weeks... Are years because it's talking about the way you're to deal with your crops and it, and it uses that and that Leviticus 25 8 yeah there it is but also because what we're dealing with now is an extended period of time we have to rebuild the city and then there has to be another ma- uh, passage of time before the Messiah comes and then he is killed and cut off and then after that the destruction of Jerusalem so an actual week is not going to cut it. What we're going to need is what's referred to in Leviticus 25 years. So if we have 69 sevens, what we have is 69 periods of seven years. And that is the time that has to pass before the Messiah comes and is killed and cut off. And actually, technically, what it says is after that time, the Messiah will be killed and cut off. We don't, we're not given an exact date, but we know shortly thereafter the Messiah is going to be killed and cut off. Which is an odd thing, too. Imagine you're a Jew, and you're looking at this. If you're, if you're doing your homework, you, you realize that, that God is the Messiah, and God is going to come to the temple, and he's going to die. What the heck do you do with that if you're an Orthodox Jew? And then you look at passages like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and it just doesn't fit in with the worldview. What they were looking for is the Messiah that we see coming back for the millennial reign for the millennial period. All they saw was this period where the lion would lay down with the lamb and Israel would be the greatest empire on earth again. They, they had no concept of a dying and rising Messiah. David 2.0 Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the prophecy says that from the time of the decree until the Messiah comes, there will be seven sevens and then 62 sevens, totaling 69 sevens. All right, I'm back on track again. So after that comes the destruction of the Jerusalem and the temp- of Jerusalem itself and the temple. Now, if you were really paying attention, you might have noticed there's a problem with the math here. 
So we'll start here just by re-explaining something you probably already noticed to make sure. Um, in BC, the numbers progress incrementally regressively. So you have 10 and then 9 and then 8 and then 7 and then 6 and then 5 until you get to 1. And then you start in AD with what we're used to, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 of progression uh, in a positive manner. Well, if the decree occurred in 445 BC and then 69 sevens occurred, which is 483 years, we end up with a negative 38, or in this case, this is 38 AD. And what I already said was Jesus was crucified in 30 to 33. So that's a problem. Uh, the, the problem can be solved when we look at this. I wonder what that was, just a blank slide. I, I, you know, don't do things at 1 o'clock in the morning. It's just not effective. Jewish calendar has 360 days in a year. It's a Jewish calendar. It's a lunar calendar. Our modern Gregorian calendar has 365.2452 days in a year. So if you take the 483 years, which is the 69 sevens according to the Jewish calendar when this was written, I'm going to stop at the end of this and we can go back and we can handle questions because I know this is confusing, especially the first time you look at it. But if you take that number and you multiply it by the number of days in the Jewish year, then you get 173,880 days. That's the total number of days in 483 years according to the Jewish number of days in a given year. So then if we take that 173,880 <coughs> and we divide that by the number of days in our year, what we're going to get is the actual year in our time, in our Gregorian calendar. And so it's 476 years we need to subtract from, from the time of the decree rather than 483. And this changes everything. So if you take, right, go back to our original calculation, if you start with 445, the year of the decree, and you subtract 476 years this time, you end up in 8031. All scholars who've looked at this, regardless of their position, have said that this prophecy, if it, if it was to be fulfilled, had to be fulfilled between 29 and 33 AD. Now, why is there there's some slippage there? And people want to know, well, why can't we specifically get to the exact date? And there's, there's several reasons. One is uh, the, the decree itself was given in the, uh, I want to say that, I, I think I have it here, 20th year, I believe, of Artaxerxes Longomanus. I may be wrong. If you, if you have Nehemiah 2.1 open, you can look at it. There are different ways to interpret the 20th year, or the year that's prescribed here. So we could be a year off. That's why I say it's either 445 or 444 BC when the decree was given. Nehemiah is working as an official for Artaxerxes. As an official for Artaxerxes, he could be using the calendar year, or he could be using the fiscal calendar, just like we have a fiscal calendar for Babylon at the time. So that throws you off at least six months. And then the Jewish calendar was not actually reformed until about 200 AD. And so there was slippage of maybe as much as a month over that long period of time. It just wasn't until about 200 AD. It was not very sophisticated. So there's some slippage from time to time. Can't get too far off because 
if you try to plant your fields in uh, the dead of winter, you're not going to get a great deal of success. So they were all always relatively close. But there's enough slippage there that we can't be specific. Regardless of how you go, though, you're between 29 and 33 A.D., but isn't it amazing that it's that close? <laughs> it is amazing, and we don't know exactly when that's, Jesus was crucified. He was either crucified in 30 or 33, probably, but we right. don't know that either. And one of the reasons we don't know is because the calendar was unreformed, and yeah. you can't for sure go back and say that Passover occurred on either Thursday or Friday during this period. You can make great guesses, but you can't say for sure, because, again, the calendar was a bit, I mean, there was slippage there. So, what we can say for sure, though, is 30 or 33, or sometime in between, that Jesus was crucified. Wasn't uh, Jesus born in something like 3 BC? Well, we get when Jesus was born primarily from when we believe Herod died. We get that from Josephus. That was in 4 BC, according to almost every version of Josephus. There's actually some debate about that now. I know. They're, they're saying that, it, it, that Josephus might have died in 1 BC, in which case Jesus could have been born maybe two years earlier than we think, which was about 6 BC. We don't know for sure. We know certain things, though. I mean, if you go to uh, in John, you remember the, the part in John where uh, it, it's early on. It's John 2. Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple and obviously makes a lot of people angry and the Sadducees come up to him and say what miracle will you do to show that you have the right to do this and he says tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days and the response is it has taken us 46 years to build this temple but we know when the temple was begun temple actually by the way wasn't finished at that point. The, the construction continued until about three years before the siege. So it actually existed a total of seven years before it was completely destroyed. Interesting that the number is seven, isn't it? The perfect fulfillment of time. But anyway, the prophecy should have been fulfilled in 29 to 33. Jesus was crucified between 30 and 33. After the Messiah was to be killed, the city and the temple were to be destroyed. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in AD 70. Either Jesus was the Jewish Messiah or the Tanakh is not the word of God. If the Tanakh is not the word of God, (coughs) Judaism is false. I'm going to go through this again slowly and then after that we'll take questions on this. So the decree starts in 445 or 444. Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, would the 445, 444 have been calculated using Gregorian years? Or no. Uh, well, I mean, when we put it into BC terms, yes, it's our, it's, it's our calculation of when it was. I mean, I, I don't know how Babylonians' calendars worked, you know, and I know that according to uh, the Jewish calendar, we're at like 5,600 right now rather than 2015 because they're not using BC and AD. If y'all don't know, it's before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. So B.C. is our time. Gregorian years. Yes. But we know when certain kings ruled in certain areas. And we know when certain battles were fought. And what we're able to do is, I mean, like, for example, in, uh, what is it, uh, Luke 2? It says in the 15th 
year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Well, we know when Tiberius Caesar started his reign. Now, Rome was not using that calendar, the calendar that we use, but we can go back and apply our calendar onto that. So 445 and 444 would be our time. So right here, let me just back up. So we'll cover that one more time without going all into it. Okay, so right here we have 69 sevens. According to the Jewish calendar at 360 days, that would be 483 years. So how we got to the Gregorian calendar is by figuring out how many days, according to their calendar, are actually in 483 years. And then we divided that by our calendar so then we can extrapolate that and know exactly how many days that is on our calendar, which allows us to then use B.C. and A.D. to reference that time frame. Because we know in history when this is, on, at what point in history that happens, and according to our calendar, that decree occurred at 445 or 444. And once we do the calculation, we end up with the number of days, which is 170,880, and we divide that by our Gregorian calendar, and that gives us the number of years that we have to subtract from this point in history, according to our calendar. So all we're doing basically is translating it into something that we can understand. Uh, Volford, uh, I forget his first name, out of, out of Dallas Theological Seminary, has done extensive work on this, and he will tell you that the day this prophecy ends is definitely the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. I don't want... He's a great scholar, so I'm not going to say that he's wrong, but I'm saying that I'm not going there. I'm not going to be so specific. What I know, though, is all scholars agree that this prophecy if it was ever fulfilled, was fulfilled in the time of Christ, at the time Christ was crucified. So we start with 445 B.C. That's the decree of Artaxerxes Longomanus to Nehemiah to go rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And by the way, this is the longest section of this particular lesson. We're spending a lot of time here because I think this is the most important prophecy in the Bible. And it not only proves something about Judaism and Christianity, it's going to help us when we start looking at Islam, and it's going to help us when we look at agnosticism and deism. And I simply want to be able to refer you back to this without, without having to go back through it all over again. If you want to go back through it all over again, we will. But I'd, I'd like you to have this foundation in your mind at the time. So we start at 445. Temples destroyed in 70 AD. 69 sevens, according to our calendar, that's 476 years, must occur. So remember, we subdivided that, as did Daniel, into two categories. The first one was seven sevens, 49 years. That was to rebuild Jerusalem. The next one was 62 sevens. All that's really cool if you're in Israel and you're living at that time and you understand what's going on in Daniel right there. They were, they were prisoners in Babylon. And the decree had come out of Jeremiah saying after 70 years, it's another reason to think that the weeks are years and not weeks, after 70 years, they're going to be liberated from Babylon. And so Daniel starts praying, oh my gosh, this is it's time, Lord, let it, let it happen. And so he's saying, oh, it's going to happen, but let me tell you how this whole thing is going to play out. If you read through Daniel, it's amazing. The prophecies in Daniel are incredible. He doesn't just give you what's going to happen next. He gives you every single kingdom that's to come, which culminates in the final kingdom of God through the Messiah. And that's what he does in this. This is actually the, the prophecy of the 70 weeks, not the 69 weeks. The 70th week is actually the tribulation period. And we're just, that's, for our purposes here, that's 
That's over there. We don't need that for what we're doing here. What we're dealing with is those 69 weeks, and we're not really concerned about that subdivision of the of when Jerusalem was rebuilt. If you were a Jew back in those days, stuck in Babylon, and you were desperately wanting Jerusalem to be rebuilt because right now it's in ashes, that's really important. To us, not so much. What we care about is the 69 sevens, or 476 years according to our calendar, because that line right there is the line when the Messiah is cut off or killed. And according to the calculation, once it's figured into the Gregorian calendar, you end up at 31. Remember what I said? All of the scholars agree that it's between 29 and 33 A.D. And what we know about Jesus, for several reasons, I told you about we know when the temple was built. We also know when the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar was, which was when he started his ministry. And we know about how long his ministry lasted. So we know about approximately when he was killed. And so scholars are able to say, that it happened between 30 and 33 AD with no argument from skeptics. It's a provable fact in history that this occurred and it occurred in this time period. Another way to reference that is it's inarguable that it happened under the reign of Pontius Pilate in Palestine as, at, when he was procurator over Jerusalem. He was procurator from, 30, from 26 to 36. So we started, remember, we started at 70 A.D. has to happen at 70 A.D. Then we realized there's a seed. So it's really 67 A.D. Messiah's going to have to be killed or cut off before then. But then if it is Christ under Pontius Pilate, it has to happen before 36. And then now according to this, it has to happen before 33. And it can't happen before 29. That's a very, very specific prophecy. And he's writing this again in the 6th century B.C. So, we're left with only two choices. Either God came to the second temple as the Messiah prior to 70 A.D. when that temple was destroyed, or he didn't. If Christianity is not the continuation of Judaism, then the Tanakh is errant and Judaism is false. So that leaves us with Christianity and Islam. So before we go there... Let's talk about what we just talked about. Questions? Anybody having trouble with the 70 weeks or the switch back and forth from the Gregorian calendar? We can cover that again. Go ahead. I, I have had this question rolling around in my mind for a long time. Jesus was very, very specific in the uh, Olivet Discourse about the destruction of the temple because he had just told the disciples as they walked out of the temple that you're going to see this thing falling down. Mm-hmm. And so they were all... I'm, I'm listening, sure. but I'm going to get a couple of water. They were in a terrible uproar because, again, that means the end of their religion. So they asked him questions. You know, how are we going to know when this is coming? What should we be looking mm-hmm. for? And blah, 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 blah. And... Um, <clears throat> Jesus very specifically told them what to look for. It's going to happen in this generation. It, you know, it's happening soon. And it happened 40 years later. My question has always been, the disciples never wrote anything about this in any of the writing. This had to be a big thing for the Jews because they're just, they're 
religion was disappearing. Mm-hmm. Why did the disciples say nothing? Well, we're going to cover that. It's, that's actually at the end of this this, oh, okay. uh, this session. Okay. But they said nothing. Let me ask about you this: it. If uh, if the United States was the size of New York, the state of New York, the United States was the size of the state of New York, and our capital was New York City. And in 2001, people flew airplanes into the Twin Towers and destroyed the Twin Towers, and everything went haywire. And somebody was writing a history of the events that occurred in the United States, which is New York, and it didn't include the Twin Tower destruction. What would you think? They weren't there. They weren't there. Why would they not be there? That's right, but why would they not be there? Because it hadn't happened yet. Yeah, but Jesus said this is going to happen. Right. They had to believe him. Right, no. They had to tell the people. Right, but the, the temple hasn't been destroyed by the time the Gospels and the Epistles were written. That helps us actually date the New Testament documents. Yeah, but you would think that there would be something in there to comfort the people. We know the temple's coming down, but, you know, don't be afraid because God is with us. He's going to take care of us. You'd think that there would be something like this because this news stunned the disciples. I think that's what the entire New Testament's about. The book of Revelation is that, too. Yeah, but... that was written in 90. Yeah, most people think that was written in 90. That would be the only... That'd be the only book... And the only reason we, we believe that is because uh, John had been exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and this was standard procedure under Domitian during the, during the persecution, during Domitian's reign, which would have been around 90. And we know that John was exiled there, not just because of revelations, but because uh, those who lived in uh, Asia Minor at the time, Irenaeus, for example, write about him coming back from the Isle of Patmos to write the Revelation. So we're looking at around 90 for Revelation. But if you ask yourself, well, why doesn't Revelation mention the temple? That's a good question, but you'd have to look at the nature of the book of Revelation, which is very different from anything else in the New Testament. There's, there's really no room for it in Revelation. In fact, there were people like Eusebius who didn't want Revelations even in the New mm-hmm. Testament. They fought to keep it out. Not because they didn't believe it was God's word, but because it was difficult to understand and they thought they would lead the, tr- the church astray. And he personally didn't like the whole idea of a millennial period. So, But you're going to be able to see, I think, that by the end of this, that there's no way around an early dating for the New Testament documents, specifically, if there's going to be a lot of reasons, but specifically because the temple is still fully functional. I, I have a feeling, again, this is just my opinion, and we know what that's worth. Uh, that they It may did, be worth a lot. They did tell the people, but they told them orally. And it, and well, I mean, they, Jesus told him right then, Matthew yeah, 24, but I it's mean, coming. Disciples, then, after Jesus' death, let it be known. The temple's coming down. Jesus told us the temple's coming down, but it was all oral information that was given. Well, I think if you look at the New Testament uh, over and over again, what they're saying is, especially, my gosh, read read Hebrews, this religion is dead. Right. 
that temple is of no use to you anymore. You now are together the temple of God, and you're building it up brick by brick. You know, you know, First Corinthians uh, three is 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 really impressive in that in that form. He's talking about if if don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? This is actually used by Catholics to suggest that suicide uh, will keep you out of God's kingdom. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And if you destroy God's temple, God will destroy you. He's not talking about your body. He's talking about the temple of God, which is the body of believers. And if you look at it in context, what's Paul saying? He's saying, I hear that there's quarrels among you. One of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, and still another I follow Cephas. Are you not mere men? You know, that's his point. All these quarrels and infighting, you're tearing down the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the temple because the other religion is dead. And if you look all through the New Testament, especially the didactic teaching of Paul, over and over again, he makes reference uh, in Galatians. He talks about the wall of partition has been torn down that separates the Jew and the Gentile. He's talking about the wall of partition that existed in the temple. It's been torn down. He's not talking about literally. He's saying, well, literally in a, in a spiritual sense. It has been torn down. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. You know, so the temple becomes, at this point, irrelevant. Right. And I think Absolutely it's, it, it's going to be really clear as we look through this stuff that that says something really important about the dating of the New Testament. And that's really important. You may not realize it right now, but the dating of the New Testament is one of the most, one of the most crucial issues to understand. Because most of scholarship wants to start with Mark as, as the first <laughs> gospel and say it's in 70 AD. They want to start there. And then move out. It goes against all logic. If it was 70 AD, there would have been something about the temple coming down. That's why they do it. Because Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple. He couldn't prophesy it because there is no God. He would have to be able to have witnessed it and be writing history rather than prophecy. So there's a supernatural bias that forces them to start their dating at 70 AD. And so most Christian scholars, who are conservative Christian scholars, don't try to argue against that. We are going to here. They don't try to argue against it because they're arguing against all of academia at this point. They're saying, okay, let's go ahead and accept your dates. And they move on for there and then prove their case. But there are a lot of Christian historians and, and scholars, and I could have brought, I had a video clip of a couple of them that I could have brought that, that won't accept it, and they still argue for the early dating. And there are great reasons to do so. And we're going to cover some of those. Any other questions? Okay, so now we're on to Islam and Christianity. <clears throat> with, the res- with respect to the theistic religions, we are down to Christianity and Islam. The most authoritative truth claims of Christianity come from the Bible, and the most authoritative cr- truth claims for Islam come from the Quran. Now, they also have this separate thing, which is the, their biographies of Muhammad. They're called hadiths, but... These, even by uh, the Muslims' perspective, are nowhere near as credible as the Quran. We're going to start in with what the Quran says about the Bible. Now, actually, just so you'll know, um, at this time, we're just talking about sort of the death of uh, Judaism. 
Judaism was in, in a bad way by this time. It's, it's obliterated. They're spread all over the globe. Um, this is when, when the Quran was written, we're talking about 634 A.D. 70 A.D., the temple's destroyed. They're disbanded. So when Muhammad is referencing the people of the book, he's primarily, and that's who all these are aimed at, the people of the book, um, he's primarily speaking to Christians. But he includes uh, the Israelis too because he understands that Christianity flows forth from Judaism. And if you're not familiar with Quranic studies at all, I'm no, I'm no Quranic expert, but I've, I've read through most of the Quran and uh, I don't find it very compelling at all. It, it comes across to me like a bunch of do's and don'ts and this is good and this is bad. and there, There's no narrative, there's no order to it, there's, there's nothing historically compelling, nothing at all like the New Testament. But I think if you've never looked at it before, you're going to find some of these statements odd coming from the people that are flying planes into our buildings. It says, We believe in the revelation which has come down to us, Muslims, and to that which has come down to you, people of the book, Jews and Christians. Yep, in brackets, this is the stuff that I'm adding. Our Allah and your Allah is one. And it is to him we bow in Islam. So the claim here is that the Christian Bible is a revelation from Allah, just as is the Quran. There is no distinction to be made between the two, just as there is no distinction to be made between Allah and Yahweh God. That's their claim. So, and by the way, these, it says Surah twenty nine forty six. It's like what we would we would call a chapter is a surah in the Quran. And there's no, like, we have a subdivision of 27 books in our New Testament. The Quran is just one big long book. All come from Muhammad, supposedly. All of them he recited uh, coming out of seizures. He would go into uh, some sort of a meditation process. He would have seizures in this process, even foaming at the mouth, they would say. And he'd come back out of that. And he would recite what he said Gabriel gave him as uh, a direct word from God. And then the people around him would either immediately memorize it or they would write it on rocks or they would write it on leaves or papyrus, whatever they had handy. In the end, after he died and a lot of the other people who had memorized the Quran had died, they tried to compile it into the first Quran and this happened at about 634 A.D. Surah 2, 136. Say ye, we Muslims, believe in Allah and the revelation given to us and to Abraham, that's Ishmael, we'd say Ishmael, that's Ishmael according to them. Isaac, Jacob, and the tribes, and that given to Moses and Jesus, and that given to all prophets from their Lord. We make no difference between them. We make no difference between them, one and another of them, and we bow to Allah in Islam. Claim made, the Old Testament and the New Testament are both revelations from Allah. The, The revelation... Of Abraham, this is all Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Ishmael. This is all the Old Testament. And the revelation given to Jesus is New Testament. And there's no distinction. We make no difference between one and the other of them, and we bow to Allah and Islam. Same God, same revelation is their claim. Surah 547, let the people of the gospel judge by what Allah hath revealed therein. The people of the gospel known to them as the Injil. But the people of the gospel, let the people of the gospel judge by what Allah hath revealed to them in the gospel. 
So the gospel comes from God. If they do fail to judge by the light of what Allah hath revealed, they are no better than those who rebel. They're no better than the infidels, the unbeliever. So in other words, you have the gospel, live it, is what they're saying. Surah 634. Well, actually, let me go back. The claim is the gospel of the New Testament comes from Allah. Surah 634. There is none that can alter the words and decrees of Allah. Claim, the word of Allah cannot be distorted or corrupted. Surah 6.115, same thing. The word of the Lord that find its fulfillment in truth and in justice, none can change his words, for he is the one who heareth and knoweth all. Surah 10.64, no change can there be in the words of Allah. This is indeed the supreme felicity. So there's no distinction to be made between the God of Christianity and Allah. There's no distinction to be made between the Bible and the Quran. This is according to their own scriptures. The revelation of God, the Bible and the Quran, cannot be distorted according to their own scriptures. Therefore, the Bible is necessarily the incorruptible word of God. That follows necessarily from these premises. Got that? Does everybody, anybody have any problems with that? But we have a real problem. Surah 4, 157. That they, the people of the book, Jews and Christians, said in boast, we killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, but they killed him not, nor crucified him. But so it was made to appear to them, and those who differ therein are full of doubts with no certain knowledge, but conjecture to follow for surety they killed him not. That's a big problem. They're saying Jesus was not crucified and he didn't die. They believe he ascended back to God. So the claim, Jesus was not crucified, he never died. The Bible says about the crucifixion something very different. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So he died. The claim here is that Jesus was crucified, and he died. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are to be found as false witnesses of God. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sin. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of men to be most pitied. So, the claim is Jesus was crucified, and what we have is a significant contradiction. There's a bunch of contradictions. Now, when I, when I teach, what I try to teach is things that you can hang on to, things that you can remember. So instead of trying to remember, I want to show you these so you have some idea, but what you need to remember is in Surah 4, Jesus is said to have never been crucified and never to have died. And if you can't remember anything else, remember in 1 Corinthians 15, that whole chapter is about Jesus' crucifixion. And then the Gospels all pretty much end with Jesus being crucified. So according to the New Testament, the Gospels is important, by the way, because the Muslims don't like Paul at all. But they do quote from the Gospels. They do believe the Gospels. They call it the Injil. Some might say the Injil rather than the Gospel. But they believe that the Gospels are good and true revelations from God. And all of the Gospels end with Jesus crucified. And Surah 4 says Jesus was not crucified. 
So you have a contradiction. And here's some more. Abraham's father, according to the Bible, is Terah. Abraham's father, according to the Quran, is Azar. The Bible, Pharaoh's daughter adopted Moses. Pharaoh's wife adopted Moses in the Quran. Abraham lived in the Valley of Hebron. Abraham lived in Mecca. Pretty easy to remember that one. Mecca's a big deal to them. That's why Abraham had to live there. Um, Noah, Noah would have thousands, lived thousands of years before Moses, but in the Quran, Noah and Moses were contemporaries. Moses' mother would have lived approximately 1,400 years before Jesus' time, but in the Quran, Mary, Jesus' mother, and Moses was Moses' sister. In the Bible, Jesus is God. In the Quran, Jesus is not God. There's actually a lot more verses than these, but I'm just giving you some really basic ones. In the Bible, Jesus is the Son of God, and in the Quran, Jesus is not the Son of God. Allah does not beget. It's beneath him. What we have is a significant contradiction, and I want you to see that there's a lot of things we can look at. I put the surahs, I believe, in your handout. So you're going to have like surah 2. I don't remember them all the time as far as like the, the, the verse, but I can remember surah 2, surah 5, surah 6, and then surah 4. It's about the crucifixion. There are more, but if you're armed with just that much knowledge, so what do I have? Two, four, five, and six. That's all I have to remember. I can turn to them, bam. It's just like reading the Bible. It's just a chapter, and the chapters are usually really short. Really short. It's like reading Philemon or, you know, Second uh, Peter. So it's really easy. You're a Jew. Now, it's, most of them are longer than Jew, but there are some that are that, are that short. So it's really easy. It's like, I know it's in your home. Yeah, give me t- uh, yeah, there it is right there. Because a lot of times when you're speaking to a Muslim, they have no idea this is even in their Quran. Because as I said, many Muslims are simply cultural Muslims. Just like many people that claim to be Christians are are simply cultural Christians. So sometimes you find yourself in a position where you're teaching the Muslim about his own faith. So all of this centers on Jesus. And this is the Quran on Jesus. Surah 471, O people of the book, commit no excess in your religion. Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle of Allah. And his word, which he bestowed on Mary, and a spirit proceeding from him. So believe in Allah and his apostles. Say not Trinity. Desist. They do blaspheme who say Allah is Christ, the son of Mary. They're saying those who say God is the Messiah who is the son of Mary, is what he's saying there. They do blaspheme who say Allah is one of three in a trinity. For there is no God except one Allah. Christ is the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle. Many were apostles that passed away before him. His mother was a woman of truth. So the claim, Jesus was an apostle, apostle, not God. There is no trinity. Surah 516, and behold, Allah will say, so this is hypothetical, Allah the Father speaking to the son and to Mary, O Jesus, son of Mary, didst thou say unto men, Worship me and my mother as gods in uh, derogation of Allah? He would say, Glory to thee. This is Jesus saying, No, glory to you, Father. Never could I say what I had no right to say. I had, had I said such a thing, thou wouldst need have, thou wouldst indeed have known of it. Thou knowest what is in my heart. Thou know not what is in. I know not. Thou I know not what is in thine. I hate that the King James English just messes me up. Um, For thou knowest in full all that is hidden. 
So Jesus was an apostle, not God. There is no trinity. Quran on Jesus again. No son did Allah beget, nor is there any God along with him. Say, he is Allah, the only one and only. Allah, the eternal absolute. He begetteth not, nor is he begotten, and there is none like unto him. Again, the same claim. Jesus was not God, and, he has, and God has no children. If you're looking for specific claims by Jesus, because you hear that a lot, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, this one right here, he claims to be the I Am. And you can compare that with Exodus 3, 13-14. If you're not familiar, this is when Jesus go, or when Moses goes up on the mountain and, and he says, hey, you're going to send me back down to these crazy people in Egypt and, and you're wanting me to tell them that God has sent me to lead them out of Egypt? Who may I say is sending me? He says, you tell them that, that the I Am sent you. Well, in Greek, okay, so the Old Testament, the Tanakh, uh, was originally in Hebrew and Aramaic, and then uh, the the language of the world at roughly the time of the New Testament, actually going back to about 300 years prior to the New Testament period, had become Koine Greek. So they translated the Old Testament into Koine Greek. This is called the Septuagint. And when you reference this term, I am, it's egoimi. And you can say, I am doing this, or I am doing that. And sometimes you'll see in your, in your text um, a little footnote by it, because you'll see Jesus say something like, I am he. <coughs> and it'll say in the original manuscripts, it just says, egoimi. just says, I am. We add the he, so it'll make more sense to the normal believer, but to the detriment of the theology. Because Jesus, I think, is saying there that I am. I am the I am. I am the tetragrammaton. I am God. But anyway, right here, it's pretty clear because he says before before Abraham was I am and generally when your grammar is really bad your theology can be pretty good there's no other reason for him to state it that way and they understood it and they picked up stones to kill him and then he says here I and the father are one and again they pick up stones to kill him because he only a man is making himself out to be God and the high priest questioned him and said are you the son of the blessed one and Jesus says I am and you shall see the Son of... Now, this is really important. You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand on power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Notice their response. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further we need? do we need of witnesses? He goes on to say this is blasphemy and he wants him killed. Why? Son of Man is a reference to Daniel 7. A reference to Christ. And you look at it, he says, I saw one like the Son of Man coming, and he's a ruler with God. Who can rule with God but God? And he's one like unto the Son of Man. This is, this is Jesus saying, I'm that guy in Daniel 7. And they immediately recognized what he was saying, and he said, we have no more need of witnesses. Have this man crucified. Uh, Revelation 1.8. This is really good when you're talking to your Mormon friends. I am the Alpha and the Omega. He also says in Revelations, I'm the beginning and the end. There's no question who's speaking at this point. It's Jesus. Where else have we heard that terminology in the Old Testament? Who was speaking? God, the Father. He says, make disciples of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He claims to be the Son. He's making himself equal to God again. The Bible, this is really important. If you don't know that one, make sure you know that one. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born unto us, and he will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. He's talking about a child born into humanity, right? And what's he called? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
So a baby to be born is God. Very interesting. John 1, 1, obviously, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. But then it goes down here at, at 18 and says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. The Greek is very interesting there, too, because we get caught up and we read things like Jesus Christ, and it's almost like Christ is His last name. We forget that what Christ means is Messiah, the Anointed One who was to come as a Savior. Right? And then we say Jesus Christ is Lord, and most of the time, Lord is, is used, the Greek word used is kurios. What the, what the New Testament writers wanted to do was to, it, it's, a, it's really, really cool. This is one of the few times that knowing Greek actually is very beneficial. And what they do is they go out of their way to separate the two, the Father and the Son, both reverencing, they're reverencing both as God. So they're using the name Curios, which was the name of God the Father in the Septuagint, and they give this whole other name to God the Father in the New Testament. They call him Theos or Theon. And so that's the Greek word for God too, but it's, it's a different word. And they do that to make the distinction that these two, it's starting to look like the Trinity, these two are both God, but they're individual persons. But every now and then, they say that Jesus is Theon or Theos. And you start to get what you get in Isaiah 9, 6. That the Son born unto man was actually the Eternal Father because they coexist in that nature. Very impressive stuff. Colossians. There's the, I, I only, only show you these because if you don't know these, I won't go through these anymore. I'll just show them to you. If you don't know these, these are the most important verses about the deity of Christ. So if you're not familiar with them, just jot them down quickly or we can come back to them later. So you got Colossians 1.15 and Philippians 2. And um, and then, behold, the virgin shall be with child. So, this is Matthew, by the way. People say that, oh, well, John has a has a Christ that's God, but you know some of the other gospels, they're all very similar, and they don't purport a, a Christ that looks like God. Well, Matthew says right up front at the very beginning that the virgin, he's quoting Isaiah here, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and they shall call him. Emmanuel, which translated means God with us, and he's talking about Jesus. So according to Matthew, Jesus is God straight up front. Hebrews is the same thing. And then there's also the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament is uh, Psalm 110, where he says, and, and Jesus uses it to confound the scribes and the Pharisees, and they come at him and he says, uh, he says, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you your answer if you'll, if you'll riddle me this. Uh, who was David speaking to when he speaking about when he says the Lord says to my Lord? How can God call someone else Lord? And and they all just went away, dumbfounded. So I didn't put that one in here, but that's good. So Jesus is a prophet according to the Quran, not God. And there are your surahs that say that. And and by the way, um, in a minute we'll take a break and we can go back to any one of these slides and young. If you want to write some of this stuff down, we can. God has no son. There is no trinity, according to the Quran. I don't know, don't know what just happened there. Jesus is a prophet and God. Oh, okay. So these are just some of the ways you can prove that Jesus is a prophet and God uh, in the Bible. And Jesus is the son of God and therefore a member of the trinity. And so again, we have a contradiction. And again, it's centered on Jesus. So how do we deal with the just direct contradiction and that is to claim corruption. That's what Islam 
will claim. That's what if every just about every single conversation I've ever had with a Muslim. By the way, Muslims are really easy to talk to, and most of them are very nice people. Most of them are easier to talk to about things of this nature than than most of the apathetic Christians running around. Um, it's very difficult to convert a Muslim. Again, that's not our job. That's God's job. But it would be you have. This is something good when you're when you're talking to other people. Try to put yourself in their shoes. So it would be like a Muslim trying to convince you that Jesus was not crucified, that Jesus was not the Son of God, that Jesus was not God. Everything in your worldview is built on those facts, right? Well. Convincing them that there is a trinity and that Jesus was God and that Jesus was the Son of God is something they call shirk. And it's, it, it will it'll get you killed in most countries with Sharia law. It will also get you uh, disowned by your parents. You'll lose your job. You'll become an outcast. So you're asking an awful lot. In, in America, it's not near as big a deal, right? You, you could be disowned by your parents, but you're probably not going to get stoned. But you're asking an awful lot of someone to completely turn their worldview upside down. So be gentle with them. And again, what we're trying to do is put stones in their shoe. Well, what do you do with Surah 4? Surah 4, and Surah 4 it says that Jesus was not killed, he was not crucified. But the Bible says that he was killed and was crucified. Oh, that's because the Bible's been corrupted. Here's the question you ask. When? When was the Bible corrupted? Now, if they say, uh, I mean, how do they get around the historical fact that he was crucified? Well, what they say is there was someone crucified, but it wasn't Jesus. It was Judas Iscariot, is what they say. And this is in one of the Hadiths. And this is the way they explain the situation. The way they explain the corruption, it, it started in about 1000 AD. They started saying that, uh, that, w- that at the time of the Quran, 634, what we had was the true word of God. But the disciples of the Trinity, in other words, the bad people working in Christianity, corrupted their own translations such that we end up with this idea of Jesus being crucified, him dying, and him being God, and him being the Son of God. So they say that our Bible is corrupt. Now, the Quran was compiled in 632. I said 634. It's actually, it is actually 634, not 632. There's, it's, there's a history there. It's, it starts in 632. It's not actually compiled until 634. Uh, Muhammad died in 632. That's why that number stuck in my head, I think. The crown of I'm an absolute mess. Look at that. It could be one of either. We don't know. Um, our current New Testament is derivative of manuscripts which predate the Quran by more than 300 years. Now, I'm going to take a minute to explain this because we were talking earlier about terminology and how things can be misunderstood, and I want to make sure that everybody has a pretty good idea of what we're talking about here. Doc, can I borrow your, or Ron, can I borrow your Bible for a second? Sure. Thank you. Um, <coughs> all right, so right here is where the New Testament starts. 
we tend to think of the Bible has always existed just like this. The Old Testament, you got the New Testament. And it's almost like we believe that all the disciples and the apostles got together and they sat down in a room like this and they wrote out the New Testament. And when they got done, they had everybody check it over. Just, just what you think. Okay, good. Let's put it together in a book and we'll take it down to University Press and we'll get a couple thousand copies distributed and we'll spread them around. But what what really happened was you have a bunch of individual writers. There are roughly 40 writers in the Bible, and there are roughly there are eight or nine in the New Testament. We don't know for sure who wrote Hebrews. And they write individual letters to individual communities. So Paul thinks. So Paul writes to the church in Colossae or Ephesus or something like that. And he does so almost certainly on a scroll. And then he he, he what would usually happen is he would he would have a scribe there and he would dictate to the scribe. Now, I, I don't want to take a, this is for people who have never thought about textual criticism, this sounds like it's overly scholastic and it starts to make you go, wait a minute, they're supposed to be carried along by the Holy Spirit, according to Peter. I'm not saying they're not. I'm saying that Paul, carried along by the Holy Spirit, is dictating to a scribe what a scribe is writing down. Did this all happen in one sitting? I doubt it. I mean, Romans is a long book. You know what I'm saying? So, most likely he's dictating to a scribe over a period of time. The scribe gets finished. Paul checks it over again and says, yes, that's it. The scribe makes another copy, leaves one with Paul, takes it to Rome or, or to Ephesus or Colossae or something like that. When he arrives at the church, the scribe, usually the scribe who wrote it, who penned it, will deliver it orally to the church there. He'll read it to them. And then they'll make copies of it there. And they'll spread those copies around. And then those copies will get made into more copies. And eventually, they're all over the place. We're going to see this in a little bit on a map. But you don't start off with the New Testament. What we have now, that's a book, right? This is actually kind of interesting. The Christians, we believe, actually invented the book. It was called a codex back then. We were the first ones that anybody knows of that actually started compiling uh, instead of using a big long scroll that you roll out, started compiling pages together with a binding on one end. And it's that way when we look at the manuscripts we have, we know that we don't have a scroll, we have something out of a codex because they're written on both sides. You wouldn't write on the back side of a scroll because that side gets weather and it gets hit and people, you know, all, that, that's actually called, um, uh, I can't remember, one side's the literary side and the other side is the documentary side. So what they would do is they'd write on a scroll, and when that side get worn out, they would flip the scroll around, they'd write on the back side, which was the worst side, and they'd roll the scroll out. And so sometimes we find really cool ways to date our, our manuscripts, because on one side you have maybe a legal, uh, and it's going to be the newer side, you'll have maybe a legal uh, correspondence between parties, and on those they date them, they put the date. And we're able to go, oh, okay, so this legal correspondence was in this date. Therefore, on the other side, the worn-out manuscript of John has to be older. So it's a really cool way for us to, to figure these things out. But anyway, so these codexes were probably, codices is what they're called. They were started by Christians probably. And they were started specifically because we were having a problem with all these manuscripts floating all around. There were churches springing up everywhere, especially with Paul. My gosh, the guy was all over the country. And he was 
he was bringing everyone to Christ and these people wanted what he'd written. So if you're in Colossae, you want what he said to Ephesus. And if you're in Ephesus, you also, you know, want what he said to Galatia. And so you want to put all these things together in one place so they can be used in the church. And so you'd have a codex of Paul, that's first, and then later you had a codex of all four Gospels. Now we don't know for sure when John was written, uh, although I would make the case that there's no way it was written after 70, and many scholars would follow me on that. But we know for sure by 100 that there were codices existing with all four Gospels in them, by 100. So it wasn't after the first century. So you had two codices floating around. So people always want to know, well, how do we get the books of our Bible, and why is it that certain books weren't accepted immediately? This is one of the main reasons. Everybody immediately accepted the Apostle Paul's work. Everybody immediately accepted the Gospels. And they were in codices floating around. As the churches were starting to grow up, they were, they'd have, everybody had the Apostle Paul's work, and everybody had the Gospels. But not everybody had Acts. In fact, you know, it took 40 years to write Acts. So, I mean, it, it was 40 years worth of events in Acts. So it, it probably came quite a bit later than most of these people that already had these other two codices. But then not everybody had Revelations, and not everybody had Second Peter and First Peter. And so these were kind of outlier books that eventually were recognized as canonical, as books from apostles with something to say from God. But they weren't immediately recognized by the church because they weren't being circulated regularly in the church. So I, I say all that. So that when I say this, our current New Testament is derivative of manuscripts which predate the Quran by more than 300 years. My point is, these are manuscripts that were passed around and codices that were passed around. And now when we look at our New Testament, we can go back to very early times, and it's those manuscripts that tell us what our New Testament tells us today. So you'll hear people say, well, the Bible's been translated over and over and over and over again. How do you know if it even remotely uh, reflects what was originally said? The translation is people going back to the oldest and best manuscripts, with the exception of the King James, the oldest and best manuscripts, and then taking those manuscripts in an eclectic way, using something called textual criticism, and determining what our New Testament should say. Lee Strobel was saying in his book um, that there were, uh, when they were developing the canon, they had specific cr criteria. They either had to be written by a disciple or apostle. someone who, yeah, apostle, or someone who had traveled with the apostle or had written it down for an apostle. Um, they couldn't. Um, uh, contradict each other if there was any contradiction right. it was out um, and so there were several criteria and it, it comforted me when I read that in that book to see the care that they went through to determine which books to use well let me actually caution you on uh, being comforted by that because <laughs> that didn't really start occurring until the early part of the 4th century so but didn't they say that it had to be written before 150 or something? What they said was it had to be written among the eyewitnesses. So and so they would they would they would apply that criteria to some of these other. If any of you have seen the Da Vinci Code or read the book, um, there's this idea that there's all these other gospels that are plausible alternatives or 
or should have been included in the canon, the Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Thomas, and on and on. The idea was when they started looking at those books in the fourth century, they were able to just go, no, 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 because they didn't fit within those criteria. They couldn't possibly have been written by an apostle or overseen by an apostle because they were written in the second and third and fourth century. So they're out. But the point that should be even more comforting to you is that the, the books that we have in our New Testament, almost all of them were immediately accepted by the entire church. The works of Paul and the Gospels were immediately accepted and put into mass circulation as quickly as they possibly could be. Good Gutenberg. Yeah. Well, no, we're, we're way before Gutenberg. We're, we're handwriting, and, and you're handwriting one after another. I mean, it's just very time-consuming and tedious, but it was important to them. And they were very accurate. And you'll hear, I'm not going to go off into textual criticism and talk about all the variants. We could do that later if y'all want to. But there's actually less than 1% of the text that is actually in doubt, that actually has any possibility of changing the meaning. 1%. Most of the differences are differences in spelling. Remember, they didn't have dictionaries back then, large. I mean, there were some that existed in Alexandria, but hardly anybody had a dictionary. And there were libraries, but very few. One of them was in Alexandria. There were none in Jerusalem. So they didn't have the kind of resources that we have. So they're writing based on what they've been taught as scribes. And sometimes they decide to spell a word differently than some other scribe does. Just like we do, we spell differently than they spell in England on certain words, right? So we see a bunch of you know differences in spelling. We call those variants. And we see a bunch of uh, something called the movable new. So like if I say... Uh, I want a apple, and I want an table. Then you're gonna you're gonna think I'm kind of weird. Well, they had the same thing in Greek, but they didn't have hard and fast rules about it. You you could choose whether or not you wanted to have the n on the end of the word. So that comprises a huge percentage of the variance. And then another thing that's a big part of the variance is just word order. So in English, if I say to you, "Man bites dog." or dog bites man. Those are two very different statements. But depending on the way I end the words, and you're a linguist, you, I'm sure you understand the, the variances and difference in English and a lot of the other languages. Depending on the, the endings you put on the word, in Greek, the word order really doesn't matter. And then there are other things that can't even be translated in English because we don't use different types of datives or genitives or think in English that they did in Greek. So... Almost all of the variants, and some would call them errors, mean absolutely <coughs> nothing. The ones that actually mean something, honestly, have very little meaning. So like when the, the guy falls into the fire and he's possessed by a demon and the disciples say, we've been trying and we can't get the demon out of here. And he goes, oh no, Jesus says no. This one comes out by prayer and fasting. Well, some of our best manuscripts, some of our earliest manuscripts, don't have the fasting part in there. So, so if, if you're in the business of exercising demons, um, you're going to have to figure out whether you want prayer and fasting or just prayer, because we're not sure what the Bible says there. That's most of the variants. There are a couple of them that are huge, by the way. This is a little bit off topic, but so you'll understand. Um, the woman caught in adultery, almost certainly, well, certainly not written by John even though it's in the book of John, and almost certainly not written by any of the New Testament authors as part of their work. It looks like it was added later. We know this because 
first of all, it moves around in John. It's not always in the same place in, in the different manuscripts we have. But then it's also not just in John. It's also sometimes in Luke. And sometimes it's in marginal notes. On So like you'd have the text, and then over here in the margin, they'd write the whole story of the woman caught in adultery. And so you look at that and you go, that really sounds like scripture to me. It has a ring of truth. And I believe it probably was an actual story that actually happened, my personal belief, that was actually written down by an apostle under the, uh, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. But I don't think it was ever part of any of the Gospels as, as they had finished them, published them, and sent them out. So things like that. The ending in Mark that has to do with people handling snakes. You'll, you'll notice things. They have brackets around them if you have a decent Bible. If you don't, get a different Bible. They'll have brackets around them and usually an asterisk that says not in the earliest manuscripts. Those are the two biggest things. Most of the other things, the, the ending in Mark, which as long as you're not planning on handling snakes, you know, not a big deal. And uh, the woman caught in adultery which changes your theology not even one little bit, but it's a really cool story and you're kind of going... Man, I wish that was in there, you know. But that's it. All the rest of the stuff that we would call variants are really, really insignificant. It's it's the changing of a the to an of, you know, things like that that do change the meaning, but they don't change the theology at all. So they did a really good job of copying these manuscripts, and the ones that our New Testament reflects are very early. And so, in fact, Dan Wallace, uh, one of the most noted textual critics in the world, he's up here at Dallas Theological Seminary, he, he shows that 43% of our New Testament comes from manuscripts which date prior to 200 AD. So that's very early. That's The people who studied under the apostles were still alive at that time. And those are the manuscripts we have today. And what's crazier is Dan Wallace has also found a set of six more manuscripts just recently. They haven't been able to publish the book yet because there's a problem on how much people want to pay for the manuscripts. The people who own the manuscripts want to charge $5 million for these manuscripts once they realized how important they were. And everybody's saying if we pay them $5 million for these manuscripts and the price of manuscripts is going to go through the roof and we can't do this and so we're kind of in a stalemate. But Dan Wallace, one of the best textual critics in the world, along with what he said, though he's not released his name, what he said was the greatest papyrologist or paleographer, the people that look at the manuscripts in the world, they both have decidedly said that we have a copy, we have, a, we have at least a fragment, they hadn't told us how big it is, of Mark that dates back well into the first century, probably before 70 AD. That's huge. What does that do if you're the guy wanting to say that, that the New Testament wasn't even written until the 3rd century? And here you have something written in the 1st century and we can prove it empirically. It's not just like by logic and reason. We actually have the manuscript. You know. Anyway, so most of our manuscripts for the New Testament, well, not most, 43% of our manuscripts in the New Testament come from prior to 200 AD. By the 3rd century, between 200 and 300, we have the entire Bible. Several times over by the way, but not in biblical form like in a, in a Bible like that. You don't get that until the 4th century. Two of the best manuscripts that we have, these are entire Bibles, Old Testament and New Testament bound together. They're from roughly around 350 AD, Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticanus. The point I'm trying to make here as it relates to the Quran, even though I've gone very far field and I hope I didn't bore anybody, 
is that the Quran's written in 634, and it's then at least 300 years after we have entire Bibles all bound together. And it's from that Bible that our New Testament is derived. So when they want to say that our New Testament is corrupted, we have to ask the question, when? Because it existed in the same form we have it now 300 years at least before the Quran was ever written. And when the Quran was written, it was the revelation of Allah equal to the Quran and incorruptible. Remember, we said it was the incorruptible Word of God. So thus, today's New Testament is the same New Testament as that which was in circulation when the Quran was published. The Quran appeals to the New Testament again and again and again for its legitimacy. Also, the Old Testament, talking about Jesus, talking about Ishmael, talking about Abraham. It's doing that to legitimize itself because, understand, at this point, Christianity had taken over the world. And while the Quran appeals to the New Testament and affirms it as the Word of God, at the same time, it contradicts it. Either the Quran is in error when it says that the Bible is the revelation of Allah, or the Quran is in error when it says that the revelation of Allah cannot be corrupted, or the Quran is in error when it says there is only one God, and the author of that, the Quran and the Bible, is that one God. Or the Quran is an error when it says that it is the Word of God. In all cases, the Quran is an error and therefore not the Word of God. And if it's not the Word of God, and Islam depends on the Quran as their legitimate source of truth, then Islam can't possibly be true. I don't know how good of a job I did on the handout. Let me look at it real quick. It says, both the Christian Bible and the Quran are revelations from Allah. The Allah of Christianity is also the Allah of Islam. The revelation of Allah cannot be distorted. The Quran contradicts the Bible. One or both of these revelations must be errant. Either the Bible or the Quran is wrong. If either are in error or distorted, the Quran, if either of them are in error, then the Quran cannot be, has to be itself errant. And if it's errant, it cannot be the word of God. And if it's not the word of God, then Islam is false. But it's really that simple. When was the Bible corrupted? Because the Bible was written a long time before the Quran. And if the Bible, according to the Quran, is the word of God and cannot be corrupted, then the Quran is wrong. And if the Quran is wrong, it cannot be the word of God. And if it's not the word of God, then Islam is false. It's really that easy. You need to know a few surahs. You need to be able to bounce them around because somebody's going to say, no, no, that's not what it says. Well, yeah, it is. We can go to surah 2, surah 5, surah 6. And then, by the way, this one right here, this is the big grand poobah of them all where it says that... Grand poobah? Anybody know what grand poobah is? Y'all remember that? <laughs> Flintstones. Anyway, um, that's the crucifixion of Jesus or the nature of Jesus. There's a terrible contradiction between the New Testament and the Quran. And you can actually now go to the specific surahs and point those out. Anyway, that ends this section, and all we're left with is Christianity. Of the theistic religions, there's only one that can possibly make sense out of reality. We haven't proved Christianity yet. What we proved is that Islam and Judaism are false. Now, when I say Judaism is false, Judaism is only false if Christianity is not true. But if Christianity is true, then Judaism, still waiting for a Messiah, 
is false because Christianity is the continuation of Judaism. That's that's a qu question that I had when you said that um, Judaism is false. Um, Modern Judaism that denies that the advent of the Messiah. false when Christ was crucified? It, 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 technically, it's not false. It's never been false. Um, Orthodox, the Orthodox religion of Judaism today is false because it's practiced by people who are still waiting for a Messiah who should have already come. Okay. Judaism was always headed to Christianity. Christianity is simply the continuation of Judaism. You, one is subsumed in the other, whatever you want to call it. You know, Paul says there are no Jews, there are no Greeks, there are no slaves, there are no free. We are either Jews or they are Christians, those who are of Jewish descent that believe in Christianity. It all comes down to the Messiah. Did their Messiah come? If the Messiah didn't come, then the Tanakh is wrong. It shouldn't be trusted as the word of God, and Judaism is false. If, on the other hand, the Messiah did come, then the Tanakh, at the time and as as it was predicted, then the, the Tanakh is reliable, it's dependable, it could very well be the word of God. And if that's the case, almost certainly Christianity was the continuation of that. So it doesn't prove Christianity to be true, but out of the three theistic religions, there's only one that makes sense out of the world. And there's only five possible ways to make sense out of the world. One of those three, is to, three theistic religions, or deism, or agnosticism. And the next section is actually really pretty quick. We're going to go, the, the main part of it, I think you'll like. It deals with dating the uh, New Testament. Um, dealing with agnosticism, I'll just tell you, and we'll take a break. We're going to look at messianic prophecies fulfilled in the New Testament. And I gave you an addendum that, that lists some of those. By the way, there's over 350 of these. I just listed some of them that I think are important. And then New Testament in the times of the eyewitnesses. So we're going to place the New Testament as growing and culminating in front of the people who actually saw the events occur. And then we're going to look at the crucifixion in the times of the eyewitnesses. And all of that's part of, kind of leads us right into dating the New Testament. So really to... The idea is for the deist and the agnostic, if they say we can't know who God is, that's a positive statement that says basically God has not revealed himself. But if we can show that God has revealed himself, then deism and agnosticism fails. So all, so all you got to do is just show that the Bible is the word of God, which is not the easiest task in the world. But I, I think if you've got prophecy, then if you're... If you, if you don't believe the Bible and there's prophecy in the Bible that's been predicted with the kind of accuracy we just saw with Daniel 9, then really the burden of proof is on you. I mean, really, you if, if you ought to be able to make that clear to someone and then let them walk around with that stone in their shoe. Because that's a really hard thing to grapple with if there is no God or if the God hasn't revealed himself. So let's take a break. Once you guys walk around, grab yourself something to drink or whatever you want to do, be back here in, just, I don't know, 10 minutes. Sound okay? Yeah. I just wanted to ask you. Yeah. If, I mean, it's just what you said. So if, the, if you have this here to here, it's in this little, is that what you're talking about? Uh-huh. So it's this whole section, not just this little part that's in. That's correct. And so you, can, you can look at the footnote there. Um, this right here says, these verses do not appear in two of the most trustworthy manuscripts of the New Testament, though they are part of many of the other manuscripts. The, the way to understand that is there are basically, basically two different text types in the New Testament. Now what that means is 
I mean, you, you basically have the majority text type from which we get the King James, and then you have the minority text type, which is the old ones, right? So obviously, since they're older, you have less of them because they deteriorate over time. And people back then obviously weren't thinking, well, we have to preserve this one so people can see how old it is, right? They would when it's once it got old and got kind of used out, it's like a used car. You get a new car. Well, let's just let's get a new copy of this because I can hardly read it now. And you look at like the Declaration of Independence; it's two hundred years old. You can barely read it. You know, these are two thousand years old. So, the majority of the text we have was uh, copied in scriptoriums by professional scribes. Scriptoriums were, you know, you have a bunch of seats like this, and everybody's sitting down copying together. Very regulated. One person orally. Well, usually, no, but not by this time. By this time, you had one copy here, and you were writing a new copy here. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And there would be a room full of people doing that at the same time. And what they were using then was the Byzantine text. The Byzantine text is the majority text. They're synonymous. And the... The King James comes from a four different manuscripts that are part of that family of manuscripts, so it's Byzantine in nature. The other body of manuscripts are most reliable because they're back at the very source, and we can actually show uh, a co- the the relationship between these manuscripts. They're, they're like families, right? You can see that one has a parent and the next has a descendant, right? And so you can see the ancestors of these different manuscripts. As you start walking back from manuscript to manuscript to manuscript, you can see that these two manuscripts actually had a parent manuscript that is older because they're very similar, but the differences between them show that they weren't copied from the same manuscript, right? So you know that there's one even farther back that is very similar to this. Those are the most trustworthy manuscripts. Now, just to put everybody's mind at ease, the difference between the Alexandrian text, which is the oldest, best text, and the Byzantine text, the King James, the difference is a total of about 5%. So the difference between them, volume difference is about 2%. One of them is 2% longer than the other. Probably the, the Byzantine. not a 2% that would uh, change anybody's salvation. No, there are some, there are some things that, that come up that... You know, the, the wording is unfortunate, but it's not the fault of the Byzantine text per se. It's the fault of the Textus Receptus, that, that particular set of manuscripts that that uh, Erasmus used to, to start this whole process moving forward. The one, that, uh, the one that I... We were translating the Gospels, and we sort of bumped up against this. For, for me, it's not a problem, because I have other reasons for believing the Bible is true, but... A little bit. These guys have been led to believe by their pastors that, you know, the Bible is like this checksum inerrancy. And that's really not a position you can hold with any of the currently existing Bibles because, you know, one problem was, did Jesus say that uh, the cock will crow once or did he say twice? And the two different Gospels give different answers. And we don't have any manuscripts that show that's a variant. Right. So either one of them got it wrong or... Or, or it was, it was uh, the mistake was made in, in an early manuscript and has been carried forward in all existing manuscripts. Or, every time the cock crows twice, he crows at least once. And the person recording the statement wrote down his perspective on it without making a specific point that it, it only crowed once. You know, 
Just like the angels at the tomb. How many right, were there? There were two or one. Right. Was or was it just a man? Yeah. Those, yeah. Were the, those were the two very issues we yeah. bumped up and we said, because when we're doing stories, um, when we're doing Bible stories, we said, if you're going to do a story, and, and inevitably you always do a resurrection story. So when you're doing the resurrection story, the main line of the story has to be all from one gospel. I mean, you, normally you can pick and choose from different gospels when you're making a story. It's called a composite story. Right, right. But you can't have any information in the story that is contradictory to any of the other Gospels. Unless you're, so you have to derive everything from one. So if you, if you take, if you take the, uh, it's Luke who has two angels. If Luke is the backbone of your story, then you can't have any contradictory information in your story that isn't from Luke. Right. That would, you know, taking a passage from Mark or, or John or whatever and using your story because you, you, you're, you have to keep everything. You're going to confuse the people that are receiving the documents. Right. Yeah. So anyway, it was, I mean, I mean, for me, those, like you say, those are not theological issues and there's, you know, philosophically, there's plenty of information, plenty of ways in which, yeah. you know, it's reliable. They're not, none of those are contradictions. There are there are sometimes paradoxes. I, I remember the first time I looked at uh, in Acts nine, Paul comes in on the road of Damascus. He's converted. He's uh, you know Ananias comes over and and touches him and prays for him to receive the Holy Spirit. Something like scales fall off his eyes. He goes right out into the the city of Damascus and starts preaching the gospel. Everybody gets really angry with him. They want to kill him. He has to leave at night. He's dropped down over the wall in a basket. And the very next thing you see in Acts 9 is Paul going into Jerusalem. Now, if you go to Galatians 1... He was gone for three years. Yeah. Like, he's like, I, he specifically says, I did not go directly into Jerusalem to speak with those people. And I was like, oh my gosh, what do I do with this? And Well, and there's another problem there too, because he says uh, Barnabas takes him to the apostles. Right. But he says, I only met, in Galatians, I only met with Peter... And, oh, by the way, I met with James as well. He said, none of the other apostles. Right. right? So there, it depends on what you mean by apostle at that point. I, it would be easy to say that Barnabas, in the truest sense of the word apostle, was not an apostle. He was, he was a disciple acting as an apostle because apostle simply means a sent one, like a messenger. But, um, but Luke says he went to the apostles. Right. Whereas in, in Galatians, Paul explains it was only Peter and James. So well, no, he says he says I did not go to un, any of the other apostles except for Peter and also James, James the brother of Jesus. So I so I didn't go to anyone that was an apostle but Peter. Oh, and also I saw James the brother of Jesus. Now, why would you say that? Because James was a huge figure now at, the, at yeah. this point in the church. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So, And also I went to this guy. My point, though, is that Luke says in Acts that he brought him to the apostles. Right. But in Galatians, he says... Oh, apostles, plural. Plural. But it was only Peter. And okay, if, if you want to call James an apostle or you don't want to call me right, right. it's still it's still an issue that apostles makes it seem like it's... T- you know, right. 11 or 12, but it was really only just the one or maybe two. Right, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I don't, personally, again, I, don't, you know, I don't see that as a problem. I mean, the, because, for, for example, um, after Judas Iscariot has been killed, has killed himself, the apostles are still referred to as the Twelve. 
this group of men were the apostles, they were the twelve. Now there was this other section of apostles, and this was just about anybody who was going out evangelizing in some sense. I mean, uh, Hippolytus, one of the early commentators, um, talks about Mary being the apostle to the apostles because she's the one who left the tomb and runs back and tells the apostles as the messenger that Jesus has risen, right? So the, the word apostle, is it's sort of like the word evolution. It can mean a lot of different things. There's apostles with a capital A, and there's apostles with a little letter A, but I think the group of apostles being the twelve, or anybody in the twelve, they are the apostles. So I, I don't really see a problem personally with that, but it, it confounded me when I saw that the first time, but then I realized I, I had to contextualize what I was reading. Paul is trying to show that the authority of his ministry does not depend on the apostles in Jerusalem. Luke is chronicling what happened, right? And it's it's not even important to him that, that Paul went away and spent three years in, in my personal estimation with Jesus. Just like just like the twelve apostles had three years with Jesus, I would say my personal opinion, I can't prove it, but I would say that Paul went away and spent three years with Jesus in Arabia. It, really, it sounds that way to me too. So I but I don't think that Luke I mean he's writing in a short time span, he's putting forty years of history together. And I don't think it was really important for him to include that, and so he just skipped right on past it. It, it was hard for me to get past, but once I realized he does that in lots of places in Luke, he, he leaves lots of really important details out, what I, I would consider important details, but he's not worried about my details. He's trying to say what God is doing when he's when he's working for the apostles of the church. So I've yet to find anything that looks remotely like it. I, I, I was talking to a, a guy who has... Believe it or not, he has a PhD in philosophy. And he came to me and he said, you don't believe the Bible, do you? And I said, yeah, absolutely, I believe the Bible. And he goes, how can you believe the Bible is? By the way, this is a good question to ask, because you may get this. How can you possibly believe the Bible? It's full of contradictions. The, 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 the response should always be, show me one. Because most people, they say that. It's like saying the church is full of hypocrites. Well, come on down and join us. We'll have one more. You know, I mean, it was, it's like, how do you know the church is full of hypocrites? How many churches do you actually go to and find hypocrites? And how many of the churches that you've gone to are full of hypocrites? So, anyway, show me a contradiction. And the guy's contradiction was in Isaiah. I don't remember the passage, but you'll remember it probably. It was God sits above the the circle of the earth and looks at those on the earth as if they were grasshoppers. And so I heard him say that, and I said, okay, what's the problem? He reads the passage to me again. I'm, I'm sitting here going, at this time I didn't have no bachelor's degree, right? This guy's a PhD in philosophy. I just assume I'm missing something big here. And so he reads the passage to me again, and I say, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't see the contradiction. Again, a PhD in philosophy. He knows, or he should know, what a contradiction is. And he says, the circle, the circle. Okay, well, I, I don't get it. And finally he says, the earth is not a circle. It's a sphere. And I went, that's it? You're tossing out the Bible? Because, because God used the word circle and not sphere? Are the people on the earth grasshoppers? Or do they, or do they symbolize grasshoppers with respect to God? If, if that's true, then circle makes total sense here. By the way, I didn't know at the time, but th there were two words that, that the Hebrews could have used there, and the one that they used 
actually intimates a 3D object. So, sphere. They could have used just circle, but I'm not even seeing the problem there. And then I said, <laughs> with my limited knowledge there, I said, what does a contradiction mean? And I knew what a contradiction meant. And he goes, well, law of non-contradiction, A cannot be non-A, same time in the same way. Show me the contradiction here. Where does it say that the earth was a circle and a square in the same way and at the same time? He goes, well, it doesn't say that. I said, then it's not a contradiction, right? Well, no, but it's, it's a bad use of language. And I said, okay, so you said the Bible was full of contradictions. Where's your next contradiction? And he goes, well, I don't know. That's the one I had. <laughs> and so I showed him the Galatians Acts 9 problem. I said, you want a problem? Let me show you a problem. This is a problem. That's not a problem. That's a piece of cake. I ask people where they want the hypocrites to hang out if they want them to change. That's right. Send them over to your house. All right. Let's see. Where are we? All right. So what we talked about is the crux of all of these issues happens to be the nature of Christ and uh, whether he was crucified or not, whether he purported himself to be the Son of God and God himself and all that. So really everything hinges on Christ. And so I wanted to show you a bit of what history says about Christ. From, By the way, first of all, it is unpardonable to say that we can't use the Bible. Now, there are certain times when the Bible is appropriate to use. But the Bible is used by all scholars of ancient history to figure out what happened. The Bible is used by archaeologists. There was a guy named Sir William Ramsey who was an atheist. And he is, if you ever look him up, he is the Albert Einstein of archaeology. He's passed on now. This was in the 19th century. He goes to Palestine to prove Luke wrong. And everywhere he digs, he finds Luke accurate. <coughs> he eventually converts to Christianity and writes several books about how archaeology proves the New Testament. History tells us a great deal about who Jesus was, but the best source on Jesus are the Gospels. Now we say that sounds circular. You can't use the New Testament to prove the New Testament. I'm not. I'm using four independent biographies of a historical nature. John is a little less historical. It's more theological, but Four historical biologies, biographies, I'm sorry, by eyewitnesses, which we can prove, and there's no better source for information on Jesus. All of that is supported by these other secular sources. So the secular sources you can use to show someone that it's reasonable to believe that A, Jesus existed, B, he was crucified, first century under Pontius Pilate, between 26 and 36 AD, right? Puts us in the right time frame. And then you can go to the Gospels and say, well, according to the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke, this is what Jesus said. What's wrong with that? They're historical records. They're valid historical records that have, proven, have been proven time and time and time again to be reliable. The, the, the problem you run into is, is something called methodological naturalism. It's a naturalistic bias that says there can be no supernatural. Only the natural. Only what I can feel and touch and taste and this, this physical bias, this naturalistic bias against 
the idea of God is why this argument, the existence of God, is so important. And by the way, if God exists and he created the universe out of nothing, that's the greatest miracle of all. Anything that follows is piece of cake. If God created the universe by the breath of his mouth, the idea of him re-energizing the atoms and the cells of someone who has died, really? I mean, to create everything out of nothing? That's big news. To, to bring somebody back to life is no big deal at all. First off, the testimony from the Jews. The Jews who had not converted to Christianity hated the Christians. The Christians were heretics. A heretic from Judaism was not treated like a Christian heretic is today. In Judaism, then and there, the heretic was treated like someone in Iran is treated to con- who converts to Christianity from Islam or in Saudi Arabia. You convert to Christianity from Judaism in the 1st or 2nd century and you are dead to the Jewish race. You are disowned by your family, you lose your job, you're disallowed access to the temple, and you're shunned by the community. The Babylonian Talmud is a sacred collection of Jewish law, history, and tradition. It was part of their oral tradition very early. Babylonian Talmud goes way back, prior to the time of Christ. But it wasn't until after the temple was destroyed and they were having a hard time holding on to their culture and to their religion that they started codifying these things. And that was true of also the Old Testament. It existed in scrolls, not in the Codex, like we started talking about before with Christianity. Everybody's had a bunch of scrolls. Well, it was, it's hard to be mobile with a bunch of scrolls. So once they had to be mobile, because they were kicked out of the temple, kicked out of their city, and they had to flee for their lives, then they started trying to make changes uh, to keep their culture alive, keep their religion alive, and try to figure out how to make sense out of what just happened. Okay, so the Babylonian Talmud was essentially a commentary on the Old Testament. And it was a sacred form of oral tradition. It was passed on in a way that, like when you, and I think, I think in here we uh, deal, yeah, we do deal with the crucifixion in a way that uh, it'll, you'll see this again, but when you go to a courtroom right now, if I put my hand on the Bible, what do I say? What else? Right. You know that, right? That's just the way we say it, because this is a legal proceeding, and that's the way I address it. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I hand on to you that which I have received, it's the legal way that the rabbi would say, I received this from my rabbi, and I now hand it to you, exactly as I received it. He starts off 1 Corinthians 15.3 with that statement. This is kind of what was happening with the Talmud. You had rabbinic teaching being passed down through oral tradition, and you had a collection of this. And there were little factions, and they would argue about this or that, but it's very old. It was not codified. It wasn't even begun the codification until the 200, and it wasn't finished until 500 and something. The earliest part of the Talmud, however, was this section here of the Sanhedrin. And what we see here is the arrest warrant for Jesus. It says, On the eve of the Passover, Yeshua, Jesus, was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, He is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and has enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of Passover. Now, This is the enemy, right? Now, the enemy doesn't say kind things about you. Your mother says kind things about you. Your enemies don't say kind things about you. But when your enemies say that 
you're doing sorcery, what's that imply? Which kind of magic? Some kind of magic, right? Yeah. Or miracles. This depends okay. on the, your perspective, okay. right? Yeah. If you're a Christian, you would say miracles. If you hate Christianity, you would say sorcery or magic. I, I don't know how much of all of this you want to believe, but what you can believe here is at least this much. Early Jewish tradition was that Jesus was killed by them on a tree for performing what they called sorcery, what we would call magic, or what we'd call miracles. So here, this is a later part of the Talmud. As I said, it was closed in 500 and something, and nobody knows for sure when this comes. This was a quote of one rabbi quoting another rabbi, and he says, Concerning Jesus, I found a genealogical role in Jerusalem recorded such as one is a bastard of an adulteress. I don't know if you're supposed to say bastard in church. Anyway, the idea is that he doesn't have a father. Now, if you're a Jew, that means you're a bastard son. If you're a Christian, it means he was born of a virgin. The core truth is still the same. We were talking during the break about uh, little paradoxes that we see in especially the Gospels, where you have two very similar stories and they're, they're slightly different in certain areas. And you try to make sense out of that. If, if, if all of us here were sitting outside and we happened to watch a car accident occur, we'd all have a little bit different perspective on that accident. Who was moving at what speed, how they acted. But the core truth of the story would all be the same, right? What we see here is even the enemies of Christianity are attesting to the same core truth that we see in Christianity. So other Jews, we talked about Josephus, the antiquities of the Jews. I, I will add a little yeah, go ahead. Jerry Bates told me. As an it's attorney, the gospel of Jerry Bates says it. I'm yeah. just starting right there. As an attorney, yeah. if he has three witnesses and their story is exactly the same, that has more question to it than if they're a little different. Yeah, it's collusion. Yeah. We all got together and got our stories together, got our stories straight so that we wouldn't get in trouble. There's a guy named Jay Warner. Oh, I should have brought that book. There's a guy named Jay Warner Wallace, which is a really, if you're looking for a, sort of a comprehensive, a very interesting perspective on a comprehensive look at apologetics, especially as it relates to the reliability of our New Testament, um, there's a guy named Jay Warner Wallace. He has a book called Cold Case Christianity. And it's a, it's a big book, like big, like, you know, like you'd give your kid a picture book big, you know. It's real thick, but there's not that many pages. It's, it's odd. I mean, it's really made for the layman. Font's like 14, you know. I mean, it's big text. It's, there's lots of pictures, you know. The idea is like if you've never done apologetic work in your life, this is a great place to start. Cold Case Christianity. And the reason he calls it that is indicative of his unique perspective. You reminded me of this when you talked about Jerry and, and court cases. Um, He's a cold-cased homicide detective. Worked in L.A. for 20-something years. He just recently retired. And he's a famous one. He was a very good one. He would be on Nightline and lots of big-time cases. And his job was to go back 40 or 50 years and find the killer. 40 or 50 years. You know, half the people have died. You know, there's no DNA evidence back then. You know, so you're working with nothing but testimony, really. And whatever facts and uh, whatever articles were picked up from the scene of the crime. And he started off reading the Gospels as an atheist. 
but he's sort of intellectually inclined, and he said, well, I'd, I'd read a lot of Plato's work. He, he said he had read some of the other sages of the era, and there's no more well-respected sage than Jesus Christ, so he thought he'd at least kind of get an idea of what Jesus had to say, even though he didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God or, or uh, his third cousin twice removed. So he just starts reading through the Gospels as a cold case detective. He's reading four different testimonies about the same set of events. And he said he was floored. He said, this thing screams of legitimacy. He's, and he found all kinds of little things in there that, that I've never noticed. I mean, like, for example, um, I think it's Philip when uh, at, at, the, at the feeding of the 5,000. You don't hardly hear anything of Philip. Anyway, he says, uh, Philip, where, where are we going to get this bread? And he goes, why would you ask Philip? Well, you have to go to another gospel. And when you go to the other gospel, you find out that where they were is where Philip lived. It's not in that gospel. You have to connect the stories. And all of a sudden you go, wow, that's the kind of stuff I see as a detective where I'm taking testimony from several different people. These things inevitably will line up or they won't. If they line up, there's legitimacy there in, these, in this multiplicity of stories. If there's no lining up of the facts, then I know somebody's lying. You know, it was, it's a really interesting way he comes at it. It's it's very cool. Um, all right, so Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews. Festus, who was a Roman procurator, was now dead. This is Josephus. He's talking. Well, this is history on Jesus. And Albinius, the new Roman procurator, was but on the road. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of Judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James and some others, so James and some others, James the brother of Christ and some of his buddies, he brought before him. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. Now why do I bring this up? I'm saying this is history on Jesus. This is Josephus. He's a Jew. He's not a Christian. He's writing history. He's one of the most respected Jewish Roman historians, and he's from the first century. He's, he, he was born about the time Christ died. We can, we can look at Festus, look at Albinius, and we can say then James died in 62 because we know that this is when this happened. The former passage was about the execution of James, the brother of Jesus, but also mentions that some called him Christ. That's interesting. So here you have someone who's not a Christian, but is familiar, very familiar with the term Christ. It means Messiah in the Jewish uh, religion and uh, of which he is a part and he's saying some are calling this guy the Messiah and and also important about that culture is people you'll see it all the time in the New Testament they'll say Peter bar Jonah Peter son of Jonah right you don't call people you know Peter brother of so-and-so the only reason you would say that James was the or that James here was the brother of Christ is if Jesus was a really important person. And he would be a really important person if some are calling him Christ. Now, I, I bring this point up because the third quote from Josephus is important, and it relates back to this. The next passage, like the former, is not directly related to Jesus. This uh, passage simply refers to the execution of John the Baptist by Herod Antipas. And this corroborates not only the existence of the biblical character John the Baptist, but also his death and the date. 
The last passage from Josephus speaks directly to Jesus and his ministry. This is called the Testimonium Flavium. Now, Flavium because his name was Flavius Josephus. Testimonium, it's the testimony of Flavius Josephus. Now, I'm going to read this as it is first. At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. That's really key right there. And other nations. It's all over. This thing's spreading, right? And his conduct was good, Jesus, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. That's not a Christian. Now, there's problems with this. I'll just tell you right now. There are, in every single version, every single copy of Josephus that we have, and we have lots of them in different languages from all over the world, this passage is there. Every single one of them. This one is actually from the Arabic. Christianity really didn't permeate the Arabic language much. So there's not a whole lot of Christianity or anything like that going on within the Arabic-speaking countries. This, this particular passage being in Arabic is most likely accurate or very close to it. So the reason I'm, I'm saying all this is virtually all scholars, including scholars, uh, Christian scholars, agree that the majority passage is not original. The majority passage says things like, you know, if it be right to even call him a man, for he surely was God. Now, this is an Orthodox Jew, and this is not something an Orthodox Jew would say. And virtually all scholars agree that this was a Christian gloss. Some Christian got, came back later and changed this. All of the copies that exist, save for two, have that same exact, almost certainly false, rendering of this passage. But in all copies, even these other two that are different, this passage still exists. So virtually every scholar from every field, regardless of their position on Christianity, agree that this passage originally existed, at least in its, in its, in its kernel form. The Arabic-speaking world was not permeated with Christianity. This is the Arabic version. Most people believe that this is or very close to what Josephus said. Now, I mentioned earlier that our next passage, this one, was uh, important when we point back to this passage up here. And that's because this passage comes later. And he doesn't say anything except Jesus who was called Christ. I mean, if you're going to say Jesus who was called the Messiah, and you're a Jew, and you're writing the history of the Jews, you're going to need a little more than that. So anyway, he says that his conduct was good, Jesus was known to be virtuous. Many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him, 26 to 36. This is the time frame. And he was crucified. We know he was crucified historically. And he died. And those became his disciples did not abandon him. So even after he died, why, do you, why would disciples continue to follow you after you're dead? Why would they not abandon him? Well, because they reported that he appeared to them three days after the crucifixion and that he was alive accordingly. He was perhaps the Messiah concerning the 
uh, whom the prophets have recounted wonders. This way of speaking sounds like Josephus or something very close to this. So when someone, if you're mentioning Josephus, they say, oh, you can't trust that. No, no, hold on a second. We can trust both of these for sure. These are uncontested by anybody. And so we can say that James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, was killed. We can, we can find a time frame. We can say that John the Baptist was killed, mentioned in the Bible. We can find a time frame. And we can see that the kernel of this was certainly true. And in the kernel of this is essentially the gospel. We'll move on to a Roman historian, Cornelius Tacitus. Tacitus was a first century Roman senator, scholar, and historian. He's probably the most respected historian of ancient Rome. He was born in AD 56 during the apostolic period. So while Paul and John and all these guys were writing their epistles and their gospels, this is when Tacitus was born. He is talking here about Emperor Nero. Nero wanted to begin a building project in Rome. And he wanted to do it in what we would refer to today as the ghetto. People who lived there in the ghetto did not want their homes destroyed. And so the Roman Senate and the public, they already didn't trust Nero because he was already showing lots of signs of madness. And so they, they resisted his desire to start this building project in the ghetto. So it's, what does Nero do? Well, he burns the whole place down. And then he blames it on the Christians. And so what Tacitus says here is, consequently, to get rid of the report that he had burned it down, he Nero fastens the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, read crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, 26 to 36, and a most mischievous superstition, read resurrection, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, so now we know for sure where he was crucified, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty, and then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city, but as of a hated, but as, as a hatred toward mankind. Now, there's, there's lots of things you can read in there, but these, these people were condemned for their abominations. If you're, if you're a Roman and you have this pantheon of gods, and you have this group of people who are very odd and they deny all of those gods. They actually, the Romans, called them atheists. But that's not the big thing because there are a lot of people who didn't really believe in the pantheon of gods. They, they just didn't go out and say it publicly. But these dang Christians, they wouldn't bow a knee to the emperor either. So when you refuse to bow a knee to the emperor, you're actually showing yourself to be unpatriotic. You don't care about Rome. So you're not even, so you shouldn't even be here. We don't want you here. But on top of that, these crazy people, they would get together in secret. And they did weird stuff. They had what they called love feasts, interpreted as orgies, right? And when they were feasting, what did they feast on? The, the flesh and blood of this other human being called Jesus, who they claim is God. Now, they're cannibals. These are the abominations that, that the Romans are getting out of this. They're hated. 
and they're hated for this ridiculous superstition that the the Jesus who was killed by Pontius Pilate is now alive, and so they still follow him. This is history, and this was written at about 117. Suetonius, maybe the next most respected first century Roman historian. He was born in 70 AD, the year Jerusalem was destroyed, and he had this to say concerning Christianity. As the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, or Christ, he expelled them from Rome. He is Claudius. So, see the life of Claudius. This is actually recorded in the Bible as well, in Acts. I don't think I have it listed here. Um, Actually, yeah, it's in Acts 18.22, the expulsion of the Jews from Rome. So, another cooperation of history with the New Testament these constant disturbances the nature of which we find through a whole lot of Roman history it was among the Jews the Jews were expelled why were the Jews expelled because they kept arguing about this guy Christus or Christ there were Jews who followed Christ and there were Jews who did not follow Christ and Rome didn't really care all they knew is there was constant fighting among these Jewish people and we want them out Uh, the other one from Suetonius during his reign many abuses this is Nero many abuses were severely punished and put down punishment was inflicted on Christians a class of men given to new and mischievous superstitions here Suetonius is saying the same thing that Tacitus said about Nero even using the exact same terminology about this mysterious superstition that they had Marbar Serapion, in a letter to his son, this is just a, a, a satirist uh, from the first century. He's writing this at about 73, so right after the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed. What advantage did the Athenians gain from murdering Socrates? What advantage did the men of Samos gain from burning Pythagoras? What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that their kingdom was abolished. God justly avenged these three wise men. The Athenians died of hunger. The Samians were overwhelmed by the sea. And the Jews, desolate and driven out from their own kingdom, now live in complete dispersion. But Socrates is not dead because of Plato. Neither is Pythagoras because of the statue of Juno. Nor is the wise king because of the new law he laid down. The new law that usurped what you were talking about earlier, the temple. No longer do the Jews need the sacrifices of the temple, for there's this new law that you find in the New Testament called the law of Christ. All right? Plenty of the younger. This is a much longer passage. I shortened it because I care for you people. Um, Plenty of the younger is is a Roman governor, and he's having a real problem with these Christians. He's writing at about 111. So still really early, right? John died in 100, the Apostle John. So we're, we're really early, and he's having a lot of trouble. So he writes Caesar to ask him what I'm supposed to do. Caesar, Titus Caesar. He says, I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault of error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly to a hymn to Christ as to God and to bind themselves by oath to some not to some crime but to or not to commit fraud theft or adultery not to falsify their trust 
nor to refuse or return a trust when called upon to do so. In other words, they're just not doing anything wrong. When this was over, it was their custom, this is when their meeting was over, it was their custom to depart and assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary food and innocent food. Now why are they saying that? Remember what we just talked about, the love feast and the cannibalism, and, and they they were trying to straighten plenty of the younger out. We're not doing anything like that. It's, it's bread, it's wine, that's it. It's all we're doing. And he says, the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition, again, has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. Hence, it is easy to imagine what a multitude of people can be reformed if an opportunity for repentance is afforded. This is in 110. They're in big trouble. Christianity's taken over the world, and the Romans are trying to figure out how in the world they're going to deal with it. Actually building it up, it's not that it's not that big. I didn't have any idea what else to do. So we now have shown that um, we now shown that Jesus is the key to all of this, and that the theistic religions all have differing things to say about Jesus. In one sense, I mean. Israel's pointing to Jesus, but then they denied him when he got here. Islam says Jesus was a prophet. He worked miracles, but they don't believe he was God nor the Son of God, and they don't believe he was crucified or died. So it all kind of comes down to Christianity being about Christ and what we know of Christ generally coming from the Bible, though not solely from the Bible, because we've just seen that all that we know about Jesus in the Bible is supported by what we can see in history. And we looked at both what the Jews had to say and with what the Romans had to say, the people that were there. Agnosticism and deism would both claim that they are open-mindedly wanting of more evidence. In other words, a fair-minded deist might reconsider the deistic position if he or she had evidence that proved a god had acted in creation sometime after the moment of creation. Because theism is this idea that God created everything and then still has interaction with his creation as opposed to deism which says God created everything and walked away so the deist would say I'd convert from deism if you could show me that God still acts in creation if he's, if he's in some way um, made himself known the agnostic would say that there is a creator he'd have to concede that given the evidence from the existence of God but he would also say that I don't have enough evidence for a particular creator. So you're going to have to show me that your God has revealed himself to us. So far in the study, we have seen that if any theistic religion is true, it has to be Christianity. Christianity has the Bible as its source of truth. If it could be proven that the Bible was a revelation from the creator, then one would have proof that the creator has transcended the noumenal into the phenomenal, meaning transcended the ethereal spiritual world into the phenomenal world, the, the world where phenomenon occurs, the material world. So what they're saying is that the God that is can only be the God of the Bible if he's transcended from 
that other world to this world. And one would only need to show, as I said before, that the ultimate source of the Bible is divine to prove that God has transcended that barrier and has come into our world to communicate with us. So the best way, in my opinion, is prophecy. You've got this on your handout, the back page. These are, I'm not going to go through these. I'm just going to tell you they're here. You can go through them at your own leisure. And then I'm going to talk about how we need to consider this. So you need to ask yourself, what are the odds of all of these coming true? Someday I'm going to do some research on this and I'm going to get together with a mathematician and we're going to put some numbers to this. But I want to kind of ballpark it just for a second. So let's consider the ridiculous odds against a man like Jesus. He has to be born in the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Jesse, and David. He has to be born in Bethlehem, while at the same time being called a Nazarene and having come out of Egypt. He had to be a very persuasive teacher, bringing a powerful message. He had to ride into town on a donkey and be greeted as if he were king. He had to have been betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver and then be crucified among thieves and buried in a rich man's tomb. I know I run the risk of damnation by comparing these two figures, but let's just for a moment think of Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler uh, was a corporal in the army who ended up in jail. Then in just a few years he becomes the unchallenged cultic leader of the entire country of Germany. This one man shaped the course of the world in the 20th century and we're still feeling the ramifications of Hitler's impact today. And we marvel at that. How do you get a corporal from jail to the leader of the country of Germany in a matter of just a few years that eventually shapes the course of the entire world? But I want to kind of bring this down to a comparison between Adolf Hitler and Jesus. What if it were certain that there existed a prophecy about Hitler? It existed, it is available now in written form from letters which date at a minimum 200 years before Hitler's birth. So from about the time the pilgrims hit, land, hit Plymouth Rock here, we have written manuscripts saying essentially this, that there was predicted a great military and cultural leader who would come up out of Germany to lead Germany against the whole world such that Germany would almost find victory against mankind. And this leader would be born in X city though he would be known as an inhabitant of Y city, and despite this, he'll be known to have come from another country, say France. Further, this prophecy predicts that this man's lineage, with great precision, will be in the line of A, B, C, D, and E. And then the prophecy tells us that eventually Germany's advance against the world will fail, and the great leader will take his own life. When you put it in perspective, can you imagine... If there actually existed a prophecy that we could prove was 200 years earlier than Adolf Hitler in the 1940s that said all of this, it would challenge, I think, anyone if, if they hold to some sort of a naturalistic belief. How would you possibly explain that? I mean, it's not just that there's going to be a great leader come up and he's going to create a war, but he's going to be a powerful leader who will sway all of Germany against the entire world and will almost overtake the world. 
And by the way, he came from this city, but he's born in that city, and he actually came from another country. And then also, in the end, he's going to kill himself. All of these prophecies are laid out similarly with Jesus. He didn't kill himself. He was crucified. These were, this is prophesied well in advance. He was going to be called a Nazarene, though he was called out of Egypt, but he was going to be born in Bethlehem. I mean, you look at that with relation to Jesus, and you kind of yawn, and you go, well, what else you got? But if you put it into a different perspective, and you go, what would we do if, it was, if this was Hitler? I mean, how many people would start a religion of Hitler at that point? Because that's some pretty amazing prophecy, right? So, back to the likelihood of Jesus. Accidentally or intentionally even. You know, we see regularly Jesus saying, this must be done such that prophecy will be fulfilled. So he's intentionally trying to fulfill prophecy. So, what are the chances of someone like Jesus intentionally fulfilling just a few of these prophecies? First of all, he had to be born male. No big deal. There are a lot of those running around. You got a 50% chance, roughly, being born male. Now let's say the average lifespan of a Jew in the first century in Palestine is, I'm just guessing here, but let's just say it's 60 years. According to prophecy in Daniel 9, which we looked at, we know when he has to die. So that limits when he has to be born. If he has, if the average lifespan is 60 years, we assume the average lifespan, and he has to die in 30, well, he has to be born in you know roughly roughly 30 B.C. Now you have a window of time to work with, from 30 B.C. to 30 A.D. So how many boys were born in that area in those 60-year period? Well, it's a lot, probably, right? How many boys were born in Bethlehem? Not as many. Still probably quite a bit. you got 60 years, but Bethlehem, Ephrata, small place. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. You know, and even in Micah 5.2, he says, Oh, Bethlehem, afraid of though you were small. I can't remember the exact thing. But he's saying, basically, you have a great boast because out of you will come the Messiah. So it's, it's a small place. So how's Jesus going to control that he's born male? How's Jesus going to control that he's born in Bethlehem? How's Jesus going to control that he's called a Nazarene because his parents eventually move him to Nazareth? So how many boys would be born in, in that 60-year window that were born in Bethlehem but lived in Nazareth? Probably almost none because Nazareth was a podunk little town. So now you have someone who was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, that's a boy, starting to get kind of hard to fulfill this prophecy, but still not impossible. You can imagine that that could still happen. And he has to be born in the line of Abraham. So, okay, now we're getting a little harder because there were people coming in from all over the place. To be born in the line of Abraham means you're a Jew. So you have to be a Jew, male, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, and someone who can be said to have come out of Egypt. It's starting to get kind of hard. It gets harder because you also have to be born in the line of Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Jesse, David. I mean, the probabilities are infinitesimal at this point. How do you fulfill those? I mean, first of all, we haven't gotten to anything that Jesus can possibly control here. But it gets worse if you are a skeptic because he also has to be a great teacher. But not just a great teacher, he has to be the greatest teacher. If the scripture is to be fulfilled, he has to come as God, as a messenger, to bring the new covenant to all of mankind. I mean, how many people were like Adolf Hitler that were that persuasive and that charismatic that could turn the whole and shape the whole of the world? Not many. Jesus had to be better than that. And 
he had to be born male at the right time in the right place and in the line of all these people. This is getting ridiculous at this point. But he also has to be treated like a king as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. So if you're, you have to be a persuasive person, seems kind of likely if you're that persuasive, a lot of people are going to be impressed by you. But to be treated like a king coming into Jerusalem on a donkey is a statement. The statement is, this is our Messiah. So in order to fulfill all of these, he has to be thought not only to be a persuasive teacher, but also the Messiah and also God. That's what they have to think of him. He really can't control this. It's just a normal man. There's, all of this is out of his control. And then he has to be crucified. Now you think from what we know of Roman history, and you've read about the war on on Jerusalem, you know that a lot of those people were crucified, most of them, and millions of Jews, well, a million Jews died according to Josephus. But the truth is crucifixion was, was rare. Crucifixion was not the normal form of Roman uh, execution. It was costly, it was time consuming. They used crucifixion to make an example out of someone. And they would hang him up in public to where everybody walking by had to see him crucified. So they'd have to think twice about what they wanted to do with respect to Rome. So if you were a Jew in the first century, you know, it's not that easy to get crucified. You're really going to have to tick some people off in high places. How are you possibly going to explain all of this? Well, what you're going to do if you're an attentive skeptic as you could answer by saying that none of these fulfillments recorded in the New Testament ever actually happened. What you would have to say is the guys who wrote the New Testament created this character, Jesus, and this grand conspiracy called the New Testament and had Jesus fulfill all these prophecies predicted by the Old Testament authors. Case closed. Let's move on. Christianity's false. But what has to happen for that to be true? That's very true. That that's not where I was going, but that's very true, and it's a very important point. It was written before. I mean, they they know this guy existed. They do know he existed, but most of that history comes around 100. So what they have to do is they have to say the New Testament was written late, after most of the eyewitnesses had died off. Oh, by the way. And he had to be thought to have returned from the dead. Now, how many people do we go around saying, oh, yeah, I saw him. He died earlier, but I saw him again just the other day at the store. I mean, what kind of what kind of odds are you facing to get someone who fulfills all of this? And at the end of it, people are going, I saw him. He was alive after he died. It's impossible. But anyway, this is the Roman Empire, the dark areas of the Roman Empire during the first century. Those are the churches in the first century during the apostolic age while the apostles were still preaching there were I think there's 43 churches here here's the cities the crazy thing is these guys didn't have cars they didn't have cell phones they didn't have email all this is done on foot or by ship it's insane but notice that the epicenter of all of this starts right here it's pretty obvious what's happening here it starts here branches out this way and then it branches up this way. And this right here, the, this is Paul's missionary trip through Galatia. A lot of times you think of Galatia as a city. It's actually a region with a whole bunch of different churches in it. And this is actually, this right here is Asia Minor. And he's moving all the way through here. And then he ends up over here in Rome. So all of this 
is the Apostle Paul. If you ever want to make yourself feel like a loser as a Christian, just follow the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. But it starts right here. Now, the reason that's significant is those people were there in Jerusalem and they were there in Galilee. If if Jesus didn't do miracles, if He didn't rise from the dead, how do you explain the explosion of Christianity right here where they would have known better? So, the problem then becomes, well, how do we know that that happened early and not late? We get here to the crucifixion in the times of the eyewitnesses. And by the way, on this last prophecy, the resurrection, prior to Jesus returning from the dead, the Jews had no concept of a dying and rising Messiah. I said that before. Their Messiah, as they understood him, was coming in to usher in a new age, the age the Christians call today the millennial period. A dying and rising Messiah was foreign to their way of thinking. Most believed in the resurrection, but that was something that was to happen at the end of the age. It was going to be at the judgment. There would be a resurrection of all of God's children. And the Messiah wasn't being resurrected. He was coming back and bringing about the resurrection. So first century Jews would have never come up with this idea. And concerning the resurrection, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, let's see if that's here. No. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 through 19, if Christ has not been raised, remember we talked about it before, your faith is futile. Everything hangs on this. There's, in my mind, I don't know of any religious claim that is equal to this. All you have to do to prove Christianity false is Jesus Yeah, is to prove that he, he did not come back to life after he's crucified. And right in the real, middle of this crucifixion story, you find Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were members of the Sanhedrin. Mark 15, 43, and John 3, 1, and 10. Jesus was buried in Joseph's tomb. Both of these men were well-known teachers in Jerusalem. And as followers of Jesus, they certainly would have lost their positions in the Sanhedrin. Remember, it was the Sanhedrin that ordered Jesus killed, right? So right in the middle of this crucifixion, you have these two people who were part of the body of people who had him killed. If Jesus hadn't been resurrected, they would have spoken up. And if they spoke up, because they were infamous by this period. I mean, they're part of the Sanhedrin. They sided with Jesus. They became believers. They helped bury him, buried him even in Joseph Arimathea's tomb. And it would be a matter of historical record if they stood up and said, no, 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 Jesus is still alive. Joseph would have said, here, let's go to my tomb. Let's open this thing up, and I'll show you Jesus is still here. If he hadn't seen Jesus, if people hadn't seen Jesus, why in the world would they continue down this path? Because they were prominent members of society. Now they've lost everything. They lost their job. They probably lost their family. They've lost inclusion in Judaism. They're out. And again, the Sanhedrin, these were the very people who killed Jesus. These were the bad guys. If you are making up a story about a dying and rising Messiah, you don't make the heroes of the story the bad guys. That's just common sense. So if you were Peter or Matthew and you're trying to concoct a religious tale of intrigue and you're a star player in that religious tale, you do not have the members of the Sanhedrin and the women, for gosh sake, 
standing by Jesus as he is crucified, buried, and resurrected while you and all the other male apostles cower behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. If you're making up a story, you don't make up this story. And you certainly don't include people like Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus because they're verifiable witnesses that are part of the very body of people who killed Jesus. That's just one of those things that just, it's just like, really? The, uh, oh, I forget what the, the criteria is, but it's, it's, it's a, a criteria when they look, um, embarrassing testimony. You look at something like that, you go, this has got to be true. Textual critics look at that, it's got to be true. Who would put that in there, right? So again, one can't say that the New Testament authors have just made this up. Those that were there would have known and those that would have known had it not happened, they never would have become followers and the church would have never grown. And some might want to say that the New Testament documents are late and therefore they were not written in the time of the eyewitnesses. Um, but there are a number of ways to show that the New Testament documents are early. P52. P52 is the earliest fragment that we have available. It looks kind of big right there, but in truth it's about the size of a credit card. It's part of John 18. It's on both sides, so we know it comes from a codex, not from a scroll. And it's dated to... When they date manuscripts, they, they give them a date range. If you looked up the John Rylands Papyrus or P52 online right now, you'll find some people saying it's dated at 135 even, because it's on the internet. Scholars don't do that. That's the latest possible date, and even that pushes the envelope. The date for, for this particular manuscript is a range between 90 AD and 125 AD. So this is first century empirical evidence that we're talking about an early New Testament. Why is that important? Because the Gospel of John, we know, is the fourth Gospel written. So if this is, if this is first century, there were three other Gospels earlier than this one. So we're within the time of the eyewitnesses with just this one piece of evidence. Uh, there may be more manuscripts that are older, and I told you about that with respect to Dan Wallace. But the internal evidence uh, from the New Testament also screams of its early origins, and we talked about that, so in the interest of time, I'm not going to go back over it except to say that if, if you are writing about the New Testament at the time when the center of your culture is destroyed, I mean, Israel's the size of Rhode Island, and the temple was the, the epicenter of not only their religion, but it was the epicenter of their law. It was it was the White House. It was the Pentagon to them as well. It was everything. And it's destroyed. And it's not mentioned, except as a prophecy of something that will happen. Now, if you are a Christian and you are trying to show that the old religion has passed away, the religion that was related directly to sacrificial offerings in the temple and the high priests and you're saying that that has passed away and we now have a new covenant that's separate from the temple that has nothing to do with the temple that makes the temple irrelevant and the temple is destroyed aren't you going to say see, I told you so but you don't find anything like that at all which is what you were talking about you don't find anything like that so that just screams for early testimony it had to happen prior to 70 AD all of the documents included had to be written prior to then but then you also see that the, the authors of the apostles, I mean the authors of the epistles and the gospels as well, come and go freely in Jerusalem. And they're very knowledgeable about what's going on in the temple, how the temple practices 
are happening, and they they describe certain uh, areas. In fact, the one that comes to mind is in John, um, when there's a man who's uh, I think it's John seven maybe, where the man who's a paralytic and he wants to get in the water, the pool of Bethesda. Well, John says specifically there there are five porticos there or porches we would say, there are five porticos there. Well. That's the only evidence that there ever was of those five porches there that anybody knew of because Jerusalem was flattened in 70 AD. And then in 1950, roughly, they did a dig and they uncovered the Pool of Bethesda and lo and behold, there are five porticos. And everybody, the the critics for years said, John didn't know what he's talking about, he's writing late. Well, now we look at this and we go, there's no way John knows that unless he's been in Jerusalem and he's seen the five porticos. Bethesda, right? There's lots of things like that in the New Testament. So the internal evidence there screams for an early New Testament. But we can get more detail than that. This is Acts. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke wrote the book of Acts. He write anything else? The Gospel of Luke. It's a two-part work, right? He says... The first account, this is the beginning of Acts, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day, on and on. This is important because we saw in Josephus that James, the brother of Jesus, died, and we can date that at 62 AD. We also know when Paul and Peter died, between 64 and 67 respectively. We know these from secular sources. Now... Acts is, Luke has no problem in Acts talking about Stephen being martyred or James the brother of John being martyred uh, or Herod's dying off left and right. So why would he be skittish about mentioning the main characters of Acts? I mean, the Acts closes with Paul alive in house arrest in Rome preaching. And it says for two years. So if, if James died in 62, and this is verifiable, and James is still alive at the close of Acts, then Acts was written in 62. And if Luke wrote the book of the Gospel of Luke before he wrote Acts, then that's even earlier. So I, if you ever look at Acts, it's an incredible piece of history. Again, he doesn't have Google. He doesn't have text. He doesn't have email. He has to travel all over the place to ask the eyewitnesses. He has to go to Jarius and say, tell me what happened. Or he has to go to Peter or John and says, tell me what happened when Jesus killed Jairus' daughter and brought her back to life. So he has to put all that stuff together. It's going to take some time. I would imagine it spanned at least 10 years. But if we, even, if we just give it two years, and Acts was published in 62, remember, here's Jesus crucified at 33 or 30. Well, if Acts is published in, I think I've got this here, yeah. If Paul died in 64 and 67, Peter died. Here we go. Jerusalem's destroyed in 70 AD. Jesus crucified. Siege of Jerusalem takes us back to 67. Death of Peter and Paul, 64 to 67. Acts is published in 62. Catches us up with what I was just saying. Luke is published then, probably in around 57. Because if, if, if it takes even just two or three years to write Acts, then he doesn't even start on it until he's finished Luke. Right? And so Luke's going to take a couple of years to write. That puts us back to about 57 for Luke. But Luke was not the first gospel written. There were two gospels written prior to Luke, Matthew and Mark. So Matthew and Mark are 56 and 55 probably. 
there's discrepancy over which one was written first. Most textual critics today believe that Mark was written first. Most of the history of the Christian church says that Matthew was written first. But whichever it was, we're talking about very early testimony now. Testimony among the eyewitnesses. I mean, Jesus died here in 33. I mean, we're talking 20 years later, right? 20 years later, most everybody was still alive. Most everybody that was around when Jesus was around is still there alive. But it gets better. Galatians was, was published in 48. Now we're talking about 15 years. Worst case scenario. James is published in 45, thought to be the earliest book in the New Testament. But then we get to this. That's what I talked about before when I said, you know, I, I, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That's the statement. And then he gives a summary. The interesting thing about the summary is it did not originate in Greek which is the way we find it in 1 Corinthians. It originated in Aramaic. And so you can actually translate it back into Aramaic, and it, it's a hymn. It's, a, it's, it's, it's like you, they would put things together in ways that rhymed or had um, a certain uh, syntax with a certain meter that made it memorable. And this was Aramaic when it was written. And this summary is the entire gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and then after that he appeared to more than 500 the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Kind of the implication is there, most of those people are still alive. If you really want to know about this, you can go ask them. Now the interesting thing about this is, this guy Bart Ehrman is the leading skeptic against the reliability of of the New Testament. He's a scholar. He's well-trained. He's a solid scholar. There's, there's virtually, in fact, I don't, everything that I've taught here tonight, he'd have no problem with. And what he would say, though he hates Christianity, is that this statement right here goes back to within one year of Jesus' crucifixion. The idea there, most, most scholars will say, in fact, all scholars, I know of nobody who would not agree with it being at least within five years. The idea here is that when Paul comes back out of Arabia and goes to Jerusalem and meets with Peter for 15 days, this is when he picked up this summary. That's the idea. Pretty much every scholar, every scholar I've ever heard of would say, this is what happened. It happened within five years. But the thing is, what Bart Ehrman's saying is, yeah, but this thing didn't originate with Paul. It was a summary that was in existence when Paul got there. And he's saying that this summary was in circulation within one year of Jesus' crucifixion. So the New Testament, by the way, is full of these summaries. Philippians 2, um, though he was in very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God. It's a hymn. It's a, it's a hymn that pre-exists the New Testament material. <laughs> when you see in Acts, when they give a, a sermon, a speech, it's a summary of the sermon that existed prior to Luke recording this in Acts. All of these things go way, way, way back. That's why you get to a point where you look at the Babylonian Talmud, the Jews trying to explain this away as sorcery. Because everybody knew what Jesus did. And that's why you have this kind of growth in the church. Because it came out of eyewitnesses. It's really hard to, to start a religion about a dead man unless they have a reason to believe that. It's even harder. I mean, look at what we're trying to do right now 
in the Islamic countries. You try to go over there as missionaries. It's brutal because they have a whole culture. Every bit of their culture is wrapped up in Islam. Even those people who aren't in any way devoted to Allah are wrapped up in the culture of Islam. These people were wrapped up in Orthodox Judaism and you had to shift their entire worldview now. You're not going to do that without some very special events. And one of those events in the New Testament is the resurrection of Christ. So, I mean, I've actually gone over, I think we're supposed to get at 4, it's 4.15. I'm sorry, I went as fast as I could, but I'm happy to say if anybody has any questions, and I'm sorry it took so long.